Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Brett McCreenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 90. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... <laughs> this is Donovan. I'm Joe. And I'm Snell. We are bringing you the latest comic book reviews and comic news from the weeks of April 1st through April 14th, including C2E2, which occurred just this past weekend, but we're going to cover all the news from that, as well as Emerald City Comic Con, which I'm sad to report there really wasn't any news worth reporting from there. So, with that, let's get into comic news. a little bit of news. We specifically have some news related to C2E2, but before we get to that, let's go over some of the other news that happened over the last two weeks. Alright, so the very first thing we're going to cover as far as news goes is the news that came out of Emerald City Comic Con. There was a panel of uh, DC Comics All Access. There was a couple different things that were hinted at, but most of it was stuff we've heard in the past. Attending the panel was Chris Burnham, Dustin Wen, Nathan Fairbairn, and Rachel Gluckerstein, and the panel was moderated by Mike Martz. Now, these are the creators that were in, that are obviously related to the Batman universe, but as far as the comments that were made, Chris Burnham stated that Batman Incorporated has Grant Morrison telling the life story of Talia Ghul and pulls from the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams material. A question was asked on how Red Hood fits into the Batman mythos in the New 52, and it was answered with more origin stories are coming, focusing on Jason and Dick's past relationship. Stephanie Brown was brought up numerous times, and Mike Martz said they are still looking for a way of working her into the New 52, and there are no plans anytime soon. A question was asked about the necessity about Bruce hitting Dick to get the Court of Owls cap out of his mouth, to which Marge replied, maybe the extreme was for a whole nother reason. I know we probably didn't mean this, but it sounded like maybe Dick deserved it. You don't know. <laughs> I like the fact that, que- that fans were asking those kind of questions, like, like why did he hit him, uh, you know, where Stephanie, obviously, because those are, those are genuine, it kind of just shows, you know, like the genuine mindset of the, you know, Bat fandom. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that kind of questioning directed at them. Yeah, I think it's quite funny that the Batman universe fans kind of has the similar thought process and going, was was it really necessary to punch him? And then, as much as I'd like to see Stephanie, I guess I'm glad that they're, they're trying to find a way of working her in where it's not going to be just leading to more questions. Hopefully when we do see her, it's not just going to be, okay, so where has she been? Why has she not been this the whole time? 
Well, I'm still stuck on the fact that there is a female at the panel, to be honest, and I'm not sure what to say about Stephanie Brown. So I don't know how Stephanie's going to be involved, and I guess I'll just wait to see um, if and when she appears. All right, so moving right along, on April 13th, USA Today posted some news about two new digital comic series that are coming out in May and June. Both series will release in digital form first, in the same vein as Batman Arkham Unhinged and Batman Beyond Unlimited. Um, each series will release on a specific day of the week, and with the releases, DC will offer a new digital release every day of the week starting in June. Now, this is obviously Monday through Friday. The first series is based off the popular statue line from DC Collectibles called Amikami Girls. The series will feature Justin Grain and Jimmy Palmiotti writing... The artists linked to the series will be focusing on specific characters with Wonder Woman art by Amanda Connor and Tony Atkins, Batgirl art by Sanford Green, Dula Dent by Ted Nafa, Power Girl art by Mike Bowden, and Supergirl art by Santee Cassis. Each week, a character will be spotlighted, leading to an overall story involving all of the characters. The other digital series is specifically focused, focusing on Batman and is entitled Batman. The series will dive into more of out-of-continuity stories that take place outside of the New 52 as well. The series will launch in June on Thursdays. The talent already attached to the project includes Damon Lindolf and Jeff Lamar, Jonathan Larson and J.G. Jones, Tom Taylor and Nicola Scott, Ellis Cott and Ryan Sook, B. Claymore and Ben Temple-Smith, Steve Niles and Trevor Harrison, Joe Harris and Jason Masters, T.J. Fixman and Christopher Mitten, Jeff Parker and Gabriel Hardman, Joshua Helfikolov and Phil Hester, David Tishman and Chris Sprouse. And basically, to me, is what it seems is that uh, this new series will be basically the new form of Batman Confidential with one-off stories featured every single week. So... That uh, that's definitely going to be interesting. I think the Amikami the Amikami Girls series will obviously have Batgirl in it, so we'll be covering it to a specific degree. But um, the, some of the art was shown for that series at C two E two because C two E two was going on as that inform- as this news came out, and uh, the art looks really really good. Yeah, I, I remember seeing some of the uh, Amikami figures at SDCC this past summer. Um, I remember I actually took pictures of them. They were Batgirl, Catwoman, I think, and Wonder Woman. I mean, like you said, you know, it's obviously they're going to cover Batgirl. It's basically like a catch-all, iconic DC female characters as those those figures. What I'd like to say is that I, I, I think it would be cool to kind of branch out on them, you know, maybe see some Black Canary or, you know, the other Batgirls, like Stephen Cass. And um, I, th- I think they're kind of cool, you know, as far as, like, kind of anime figurines go. They're very stylistic. I'm just saying, you know, it would be cool to see more characters than the kind of the main three they've been doing. Yeah, I just think it's cool that DC are still trying to explore the digital market and are branching out in that sense. I think it's a good idea for them to do, especially if that's the way the market's supposed to be going. Yeah, I've always thought that these figures, when I've seen them as figures, were really a, a unique departure from you know the standard form and design that we've seen before and i haven't seen any designs for this comic so i wonder if they're sticking with that sort of you know anime style i assume they are um but i feel like some people i know people that absolutely hate anime and so i wonder if if they do 
um, continue in this style, you know, this anime style, if that's going to turn off some people. But um, I, it's great to hear that Batgirl will be in a, a, another book, and perhaps this will also be a gateway for people who are not enjoying the current Batgirl to, uh, to go over there and read that. So I think it has a lot of opportunities, but I do think that it may turn some people off. Oh, and one other thing is that I was surprised to hear Dula Dent was going to be one of the characters. Boy, she's a, she's a crazy person. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> wacky. <laughs> all right. So then that moves us right into all of the news from C2E2. On April 13th, the first panel, DC All Access, um, happened, and there was a number of different things that happened. Those in attendance to the panel was DC Entertainment Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris, Editorial Director Bobby Chase, J. Michael Straczynski, Shane Davis, David Finch, Jeff Johns, Kevin McGuire, Scott Snyder, and the panel was moderated by John Cunningham. Um, As far as the news goes, Jeff Johns teased that the Justice League team will be very different by issue number 12. Uh, John stated that the characters in Batman Earth 1 are very different, including Commissioner James Gordon. Batman the Dark Knight shows a lot of what happens in Batman during Night of Owls, but from a different angle. Scott Snyder teased that there would be more exploration of the relationship between the Kings and the Waynes. Snyder also mentioned that the storyline to follow the Court of Owls will be bigger and darker. Uh, The Riddler will be showing up soon. There are plans for an all-ages Batman book in the future. The second volume of All-Star Batman has been put on hold because of Lee's schedule on Justice League. Hush will be showing up as well, and Tim Drake will be appearing in Batman and Robin soon, and Snyder stated that he plans on using Tim Drake whenever he can. That sounds, a lot of that sounds really cool. Always looking forward to more Tim. Uh, both, both in Snyder's run and in Batman and Robin, definitely. See how he mixes up with Damien again. I'm looking forward to seeing the Riddler again. I'm wondering if he's going to get any sort of revamp like they've been talking about with Mr. Freeze. The Canes and the Waynes, I suppose, was inevitable because... Wasn't Martha Wayne's maiden name Kane? I remember Deanie did that in Streets of Gotham recently. Wasn't her maiden name Kane or something? Or was that just like... Are they talking about like, like Batwoman's? No, they're talking about, I think, Bruce's mom. Okay. So, which, which, I mean, you kind of forget about it, but like because there are so many Canes now, it's Bruce and both Batwomen are somewhat related, which is interesting. But no, that, that all sounds pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, when Jeff Johns says that the... Uh Justice League team will be completely different by issue 12. I hope he means that it will be good because that book is... Ooh. <laughs> Yikes. When Scott Snyder says that Batman will be bigger and darker after the Night of Owl storyline, that terrifies me because his first arc is 12 issues long and if it's going to be bigger... <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what he's going to do. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing Tim Drake in the Batman universe again because he has been very absent as of late. It'll be interesting to see how they switch up Justice League. I don't hate it like good old Joe does. Uh, There are some characters that I disagree with their current um, characterization right now. But it'll be interesting just to see how he switches it up. Tim Drake, I definitely agree with everything everyone else said. It'll be great to see him separate and individual as compared to, you know, in the Teen Titans book, which I no longer read. And the other thing, Hush, 
it'll be interesting to see if they explore his backstory um, and to see if he and Bruce are were still childhood friends and if the same sort of thing happened where he tried to almost mimic uh, Bruce's origin as Batman. Uh, it'll just be... Well, it'll just be an interesting ride. I keep saying interesting. I apologize. But to see the DC new version of Hush. Definitely. All right. So then the other panel that happened at C2E2 was the DC Comics, the new 52 panel. And attending this panel was, again, DC Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris, Jeff Johns, Editorial Director Bobby Chase, Scott Snyder, Chris Burnham, Jimmy Palamiotti. Brian Azzarello, Cliff Chang, Tony Daniel, Gail Simone, Kyle Higgins, and the panel was moderated by Senior Vice President of Sales, Bob Wayne. Again, lots of news. Simone stated that Backer will be putting her past behind her and will be moving on with her life in the coming episode, or coming issues. A villain by the name of Nightfall will be the new Batgirl villain, and Simone stated that this will be her main nemesis going forward. In Nightwing, it will be revealed how the Grayson named changed from the Cobb name. All-Star Western will continue to have references to the Court of Owls and the Crime Bible. Dick will not be returning to Bloodhaven or heading out of Gotham anytime soon. So I guess he got rid of the circus. There have been talks about how to bring Azrael back, but yet nothing is determined for the future. Harper, who is the character in Batman number 7, will be featured much more in Batman number 12. Uh, Batman Incorporated number two will feature Talia Al Ghul's life story. And in Nightwing, Sonia Zuko will be returning. So that is the news out of that. As far as my comments, as far as these, we're obviously reviewing Batgirl on this. We're going to have plenty to say about Batgirl. But the the, the thing, the, stating that there is a new nemesis for Batgirl just basically dismiss, dismisses all of the villains that she's fought up to this point, which... At this point, I think there's been three different ones, and we're not even a year into it. So, I don't know what the point of that is. I was quite surprised by someone asking um, how, you know, if, is, is Azrael going to pop up in the New 52? I was even more interested in the response, which was, oh, we've talked about how to bring Azrael back. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I'm hoping that was an answer that they were giving so that the fan felt happy because... My personal opinion of Azrael, unless they brought back Sean Paul Valley, is a waste of time and a waste of money for those of us who are buying the comics. So, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was when I when I read that news, I was wondering too. Do they, I mean they probably mean the most recent Azrael, which was a rather bad book. Which, eh, I mean, I suppose he has his fans. I, I like Jean Paul myself, but he, no one's seen him in like over a decade. The fact that Nightwing's not going to be in Gotham anymore kind of annoys me. Because I, I remember specifically they said, you know, he's not going to be in Bloodhaven, he's going to be in Gotham. He was in Gotham for literally one issue. Then he was traveling around with a circus, basically waving the flag that he was Nightwing. <laughs> the Batgirl thing, I have no comment. Night, <laughs> Nightfall with an N, as a, you know, as a play on that storyline, I have no comment. Yeah, it's kind of, a, kind, of the, kind of the opposite reaction to the other news, I suppose. Yeah, Gail Simone, I want to stop. And in terms of the Azriel news... I'm pretty sure the latest incarnation of the character was some form of descendant from Jesus. So if they wanted to bring it back, I'm pretty sure they could easily do a resurrection type story. But oh my gosh. Again, I'm kind of glad that he's not around at the moment, at least. 
Okay, Nightwing, totally agree with Donovan that, yeah, I mean, Nightwing's place should be in Bloodhaven, if not Gotham City. And this was my problem with the entire circus thing to begin with. So it's kind of disappointing to see that he's, or hear that he's still not going to be there in his hometown that he purposely moved his apartment to. The other thing about the Crime Bible, this is interesting, especially because the Crime Bible was basically the center of the Batwoman series when she was in Detective Con- Like, that's a big thing for her. And because we saw the werewolf guy again um, in Batwoman 7, I guess it was, uh, I thought that that would come back. So I wonder if there's going to be a lot of crossover between those two titles because that's just a big thing for her. Batgirl, I guess I can understand that, you know why Gail Simone is kind of doing all of these different villains. We want to build up this rogues gallery. She wants to make it her own. Um, just a, a unique villain set for Batgirl. But unfortunately, all of the villains have been really badly, I don't <laughs> displayed, put out there to begin with. So if this one's any different, I don't know. I guess I can always hope for the best. But if we can look at all three examples previous to this, I, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> all right. And... Finally, the last bit of news we have is actually we're going to play some audio. Um, While I was at C2E2, I was able to catch up with Scott Snyder, and he gave us, well, he talked to us a little bit about Night of Owls and what we can expect. Not necessarily what we can expect, but gave us a teaser of what's coming after Court of Owls is complete with issue 12 and 13. So let's take a listen. Dustin here with the BatmanUniverse.net and I am here with Scott Snyder. Scott Snyder is obviously doing an amazing job in Batman and Night of Owls is right around the corner. So Scott, give us a little uh, hint of what we can expect with Night of Owls. Yeah, man, definitely. I'm really excited about it. It's uh, it's going to bring sort of 60 talons, I guess, or 50 talons from all different eras of Gotham history uh, out into the skies over Gotham attacking targets uh, that will be revealed soon and stuff, and it will pit them against the entire Bat family. So pretty much, um, I guess every book except Batwoman I think will be a part of it. All-Star, Red Hood, Catwoman, you know, Batwing to the ones you'd expect too. So, um, And it really will give... We, what we tried to do with the event, I guess, is, is not work top down like I I didn't want to give everybody a story and say here's how you do it what happened was I just got to a point in the Court of Owls story where I realized the attack that the owls were going to make on Gotham was big enough that they would really have to I would have to as a writer address where the rest of the family was and so in doing that I talked to Mike Martz and he said why don't you just um, ask the other writers if they want to do issues to tie in so I called them up you know and luckily we're friendly and um Everyone seemed to to want to tie in. So I basically gave them no marching orders about it, except, you know, there were certain rules about how the talent could behave. You know, each talent, that they follow a certain history, each of them, obviously. And that, you know, if you wanted to, try and take advantage of the fact that they're from a historical era that you can pick. So everyone got to pick a talent from an era of their choosing. So you could choose one from the 1950s or the 1600s. So there's going to be a lot of Gotham history in the event because it really is a story that's about Gotham's dark and secret history being brought to bear against its heroes in the present, you know? So that's really the way we think of it, and I'm very excited for it. I'm really proud of what everyone's put together, just proud of being one book among the whole list of books, you know, um, that that, um, are going to make up the Night of the Owls thing in May. So 
Here we are uh, at C2E2. It was only about two years ago, right before you know, you pitched the story to Dan DiDio for the Black Mirror. How does it feel after two year, only two years' time frame? We went from you were doing American Vampire to now basically writing Batman the main series and heading up this giant crossover. Well, I love C2E2, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Like, it really was right over there that I pitched uh, the, my idea for a detective, um, you know, and began my whole tour in Gotham. So it feels amazing, man. I mean, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to get up and be able to sit down at my desk and, and write Batman. I mean, it's a dream come true. Um, I know it sounds cliche, but it really is. Like, it really is a dream come true. And all I can say to you and to everyone reading us, honestly, is that I promise never to take that for granted. I, I will work as hard as I can to make every issue as good as I can possibly make it as long as I am here. And as and if I don't have a story, if I don't have something in mind for Batman that I think is as good as Court of Owls, I won't write Batman. I promise. I won't write it just for the sake of writing it. So the stuff coming up at the end of Court of Owls is our biggest and craziest and darkest stuff. And the stuff coming up right after it, too, is going to blow you away. The story that comes up right after Court of Owls as well. Can you hint at some of the villains that we may see sometime in the near future, or if not, a villain that you'd like to work on sometime in the future? Yeah, you're definitely, I'll just say that you're going to see a lot of a lot of villains coming up after Court of Owls, but uh, definitely one in particular. I, ca I can't give it away. I can just say I'm really excited about, about the story we're going to tell. That's it. Or, or they would kill me. DC would, like, reach over and I'd be, like, yanked off with a book. Yeah, and they're, they're right over there, so... <laughs> All right, well, Scott, thanks for your time, and uh, we're looking forward to Night of Owls. All right, so that was our interview with Scott Snyder. Um, obviously, if you want to know more about Scott Snyder, you can check out our exclusive interview that we did with him back in October over on the Batman Universe interview feed on the website. It's a very lengthy interview that we did with Scott talking about all kinds of things, not only about the comics, but also um, his fandom as well. So definitely uh, check that out. Um, with that, let's start off with our comic book reviews. We have five books to cover, and of course, because we have five books to cover, one of those books, obviously, is, is bound to have a giant rant. So, let's start off with our very first book, which is Batwing number 8. Batwing number eight, Massacre in the Heart of Gotham. Written by Judd Winnick, illustrated by Dustin Wynn. Uh, just like the last issue, we continue in Gotham City where Massacre is taking on Nightwing and Robin. Batman and Batwing are headed uh, to the scene. And pretty much the rest of the issue, in all, in all honesty, is just one big fight scene. Batman, Robin, and Nightwing are taking on uh, Steelback. The, basically the armor suit that was you know, basically being taken control by Massacre. Uh, with help from Daniel Balagun, the original Steelback in the Batwing plane, while Batwing and Massacre uh, basically have a battle um, on the other side of the, the warehouse. He accuses Massacre of being General Kata, warlord and monster, to use his words. And Massacre says, Kata, how dare you call me that? I would never be that monster. What kind of guy do you think I am? It's not like I kill people or anything. So the, as the fight continues, Batwing ends up knocking his skull mask off of his face. And... <gasps> What? It's it's his brother? Wow! What a shock. So, Batwing recognizes Massacre as his brother, 
Isaac, calls him Isaac and says, how do you know my name? And he says, well, what happened to you? He says, I was saved by the Redeemer. Who was the Redeemer? But all of a sudden an explosion occurs, and we don't know exactly what happened, but we find out later on the issue. We cut to, quote-unquote, elsewhere in an abandoned office building where we see presumably the, the, the Redeemer all in shadows, essentially the mastermind behind Massacre, be confronted by Batwing. It turns out to be Hosiah Kone, one of the original um, members of the kingdom, but, because he was one of, the, one of the people who spoke out against their betrayal for um, the, basically the betrayal that they did years ago, which split up the team. He basically decided to exact revenge and kill them all. And he also discusses taking in Isaac and training him to be a warrior. Batwing looks like he's tempted to kill him, but Batman talks him off the bridge, uh, metaphorically and physically speaking. We end the issue in the Batcave, where Batwing is kind of uh, mulling over the, the story's events and says, I don't know if I can do this, Batman. Um, how, can I, how can I be a protector when I have all this hatred and blood you know, on my hands? And Batman says, you know, I was born from death, too. The best we can do is to fight what's outside. It helps us within. You're a hero, and you honor us all with your strength. And the issue ends with a flashback between David and his brother Isaac talking about their parents and um, saying that, that David will always be there for Isaac. Next, the Night of Owls. All right, Batwing number eight. Now, let me first start off with, I want us all to remember, I think it was episode, or not episode, but the issue six that we were reviewing where I basically said there was only one way that this storyline could wrap up. And it had to be Massacre being revealed as David's brother. And, wow, if only I was wrong, because this series just went and took a nosedive on my pull list. And I say that because, I mean, if I can predict the end of this eight-issue storyline, six issue, six issues in, there's a problem with that. Because if I'm paying $3 in, for two more months, and I don't actually need to read the books to know what's going on, that that's an issue. The other problem is... I have to take a little bit of offense to what Don said about how Batman uh, talked uh, Batwing off the, off killing him because I don't think that was the case at all. That's not the way I read it. I read it as he's Hosea was basically you're going to kill me, aren't you? And Batwing was like, no, I'm I'm not going to kill you. I'm I'm done killing. And Batman was just happened to be there watching, and they didn't really show Batman in my well. This is the way I remember it. I remember. I don't remember them actually showing Batman until he was actually saying, "No, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm done killing." So I mean, there's there's obviously different ways to look at it. That's just the way I looked at it because I looked at it from the character's perspective of he's he's tired of killing, he's tired of people dying, and that's you know he's he's reached this point as a hero that you know he doesn't want to have to do with killing anymore even though that's where he came from. Which was odd, because then the next sequence was basically him moping to Batman saying, I don't know if I can handle this, because I can't, I was, I used to kill people. But wait, you just said you couldn't kill people, because that's not who you are anymore. So why are you talking about it the next page, about how you don't know if you can do this? You just did it. You didn't kill the guy. What are you talking about? <sighs> the... Damien and Nightwing being an issue kind of was, again, it, to me it was just, you know, uh, it was a trick. It was, hey, guess what? These guys are in the issue, so you should check it out. It was kind of a grandstanding 
method, in my opinion, because they didn't really serve a big purpose. They say, oh, we can't take down this guy. We don't know what to do. So who takes down Steel Jacket? Batman, who was with Batwing all along. So what was the point of even having the other two show up, other than just to say, hey, these characters are here? I will have to say the way the issue ended with the flashback between Isaac and David, to me, and it ended the issue in the story arc perfectly. But at the same time, it's almost as if this eight issues should have been just a mini series cut down to four issues, and this was it. This this was the end of Batwing, and I think just maybe, not to say that. Uh, Well, no, it is to say, Batwing probably should be over and done with by now, because it's just, it's not going anywhere. We got all this hype about the kingdom, only to to find out very little information about them, and then the whole reveal of what they did was kind of subpar, and I think that this could have been an excellent way to end the series and go out on a high note, because, and then have Batwing appear in other books, because... As a matter of fact, he's appearing in Justice League International. So if the character is appearing in Justice League International, it makes sense because he's from Africa, which is an international or is a nation that's not the United States, making it Justice League International. It made sense for him to pop up over there. And it almost seems as if he should have popped or he popped up over there because the series was going to get canceled. And then someone decided, wait, 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 wait. let's have a tie in with Night of Owls. Night of Owls will give it a sales boost, and then we'll see what happens after that. I don't know. I, I just don't know what what's going on because this book is I. It's barely making top 100 comics. It's only a matter of time before it's it's going to get canceled. So I, I think this would have been a perfect time for it to go on a high note, and it's not. So whatever. I'm going to give this uh, one and a half out of five batterings. You can't call it a tie-in. It's not a tie-in. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Standalone issue having to do with a tie-in. <laughs> there you go. I actually, I, I, I agree with a lot of what Dustin said, although I actually kind of came off better with this issue, I think. I mean, we all knew who, who Masker was. I, I kind of figured, the second they started questioning it, it was like, oh, it's his brother, okay. I, I mean, I mean it, was, it's, it was just really, really, like, obvious. It was actually shockingly obvious. I mean, I don't know what Winnick was thinking, like, masquerading it as, as, a, as a mystery, but... um. That being said, I did like how it kind of the story was written. I liked Batman, Nightwing, and Robin fighting uh, Steelback in the background. I mean, yeah, we didn't get much of them, but what we got, I thought, was pretty entertaining. I mean, Nightwing has some cool lines, like he said. Um, he he majored in leaping away from danger, or something like that. I thought I thought this was a pretty enjoyable issue altogether. I liked I liked the fact that Batwing had a crisis of conscience because <laughs> Soccer Blur, his, his brother, is still alive, and I liked that his brother turned out to be not somebody who was uh, who had his own twisted way of looking at things, but he was sort of twisted by someone else who who in turn was a uh, you know former good guy. I thought the reveal of Hosea Kone was kind of a cop out. I suppose if 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 we're looking on a list of suspects, it could be one of the kingdom, but I felt that I, I don't know. I felt it was too uninspired to, to make, you know, one guy, a member of a teammate, just kill everybody. I, his his justification for what he was doing didn't seem sound enough. I mean, villains re- re- rarely come off as, you know, reasonable and uh, logical. But even still, it, for the sake of the story, it didn't come off, it didn't really make much sense. But I think the way that the story hangs together in terms of, that, in terms of Batwing's characterization is pretty nice. I mean, we really don't get much personality from the guy besides his tortured past, which honestly is kind of boring. I thought Dustin Wynn, you know, did an excellent job as always. 
he draws he draws a wonderful Batman, especially that scene where he's uh, he shows up after Batwing on the ledge, and it's, he does that thing that Dustin Wynn always does, where his cape kind of just rises up like smoke. I always love when he does that. Um, I really did like the scene with Batwing and Batman at the end of the Batcave. I actually wish it was longer because this is where I, I agree with Dustin. Batwing doesn't feel like a member of the Bat family. He feels like he feels like a member of Batman Incorporated, where he works for Batman, but he's not really like, tied to him in any way. And I think if this were, I think I wish this was a storyline in Batman Incorporated because we could have the next storyline be about uh, Night Runner or the next storyline be about like Raven and the other guys. Because I was saying from the very beginning, I'm not opposed to diversity in comics, but to give Batwing his own title feels very unjust when we have so many other diverse characters. And really, I, I still with the storyline done, it's the most very personal storyline done. I don't feel we know any more about him than we did after the first two or three issues. So I did, I did like this issue, I really did. But I agree with Dustin that like this pretty much closes his, his story, and I'm not sure what else the character can give us. But I'll give it three and a half out of five battle ranks. Uh, yeah, starting with the most obvious issue, which was just the reveal of uh, David's brother as Massacre, which we I'm pretty sure we all saw coming. And when I did read that, I was like, really? We're doing this? And I put it down. <laughs> and when I made myself a sandwich, came back to it in about 15 minutes. <laughs> oh. I was like, right, I'm, I'm ready for this now. And uh, I read it. And yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. I, I think Don and Dustin both had some really good points in what they were saying in that it's... So a lot of it doesn't make sense. A lot of it's... it's it was very predictable and it's, it's, it shouldn't be... In that, you know, when you're reading a comic book, the whole point is to be entertained. And when you can tell exactly what's going to happen, as if it's, like, writing by the numbers, then it's not entertaining because you're just going, oh, well, this is going to happen next. And then it does. And you don't get any satisfaction from that. It's just, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I saw that coming. I also agree with Don that you don't really learn anything about David in this arc. We we learn some of his history, and uh, we learn that he's a tortured soul from his time as a child soldier which you know that's important to the character but we still don't exactly know how he feels about that we the closest we got was at the end of this issue with him talking to batman and i did like that scene but i still don't feel that he's part of the batman family and i guess i don't really feel like he needs to be because of this disassociation uh, from batman with the whole batman inc where batman's more of an icon than a person i think in batman inc but it's nice to you know flesh out the character and have some connection there between the two, and knowing that Batman's a role model as well as just like a leader. I, I think I, I did enjoy the issue overall. I'm not sure how I felt about Massacre being like a pawn for Josiah K- Cone or Coney. I felt that all the way through he's been a pretty strong character on his own, pretty one note, but a strong enough villain in his own right you know, killing metahumans all on his own just as one person to then find out that he's been led by someone else. I I thought that was a bit untrue from what we've been reading so far, but it didn't affect the story overall because it was not meaningless, but it it didn't have any deep sort of values to it. But as an issue, I, I enjoyed it definitely more than the last issue and Dustin Wen's art was absolutely gorgeous in the art. I agree with Don, I love when he does Batman with his cape just sort of rising up. So, uh, two and a half batarangs. 
Yes, I do love me some some Dustin Nguyen. You know, this issue, I think it was both obvious and surprising. Obviously, yes, it was not so surprising that Isaac was massacred, but I thought it was interesting that he was shaped and guided by someone from the kingdom, and it was, you know, the kingdom scientist himself. That was something I didn't necessarily see coming. I did. I liked the, the fight scene, having the Batman men, I guess, as Nightwing called them, all fighting together and having someone on comms guiding them. Uh, it, was, it was great to see them as a team. I do agree that I don't necessarily see Batwing as, you know, this full-fledged member, one that fits in really easily with the Bat family. He's probably there as... His name, I guess, is the only thing that really connects him because I do see him as just this kind of different entity. Uh, it was nice writing to have this fight divided from the one between Batwing and Massacre, really getting a full experience from all of them combined. I liked the ending with the flashback between the brothers. Uh, I thought it was a heartfelt moment. I also liked the doubt that David expresses of whether you know he can actually do the job since he was born of such evil. And I think we've seen this before, and... I know that, you know, I think Dustin, he didn't necessarily like this this conversation as much, but I just really like seeing Batman in his place as a mentor, and I think we've seen this a few times in this particular book, and it's just great to see him give guidance because he's been there, he's been in that situation, and he was there, we'll see this again, he's acting the mentor and the proper father in Batman and Robin, and I think this is just uh, the, the type of guidance that he would give. Batman can certainly relate, obviously, and he speaks words of encouragement, which is a great person can always do. I do wonder how Batwing was able to get out of the building but neglected to take Massacre with him. That all happened on off-panel land, which is one of the most frustrating places I will never have the opportunity of visiting. And, uh, you know, now that Massacre no longer has a handler, uh, it will be interesting to see how he will fit in with the book because, yes, this arc is over, but Massacre is still living. We still have the scientists. So instead of seeing this as the end, um, and yes, it was obvious we all knew this was coming, but I think there, there are a lot of opportunities to go forward. And it's really going to be able to show the strength of Judd Winnick um, as a writer if he's able to pick up these pieces and push forward and make a, a stronger book and hopefully please um, the Dustins and the Joes and the Donovans of the world. <laughs> but I give the <laughs> except for me, I give this a 3.5 out of 5. It wasn't the strongest, but I thought it wrapped up nicely, and I think there is potential to continue on. All right, so that is going to give Batwing number 8 a total of 2.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Detective Comics number 8. It appears I chose unwisely, Detective. Written and drawn by Tony Daniel. The issue starts off with Catwoman falling from the sky, running in terror, and it appears that uh, Catwoman is seeing Poison Ivy trying to attack her. As she, as we come to realize, it's not Poison Ivy trying to attack her, it's actually Batman trying to get some information from her, but Catwoman has been doused with Scarecrow's fear gas. As Batman sprays her with an antidote, he's trying to figure out exactly what happens. We skip back in time where Batman is talking to Commissioner Gordon, and Commissioner Gordon passes him a phone. On the phone is Scarecrow telling Batman he has a game to play, and if uh, he is quick enough, he can save somebody. 
He has to complete three tasks, and if he completes all three tasks, then the person will be saved. The things that he has to do is that he has to find out what Catwoman is trying to steal from a disease control lab, and he has to find out who she's trying to steal it for, and then find that person that she's trying to steal it for. Catwoman basically explains that uh, the reason, or what she was trying to steal was, in fact, the anti-fear toxin capsules that counteracts Scarecrow's fear gas. As Batman leaves Catwoman and takes off, we see him head towards somebody whose name is Digger Jones, which Catwoman gave him the name for. Um, Down at Printer's Row, there's a dogfight going on, Batman breaks it up, and Digger Jones uh, takes off, and Batman trails Digger Jones, and then ends up catching him and convincing him after using the the dogs from the dogfight that he needs to talk about it. Meanwhile, Batman realizes that uh, Scarecrow is watching him all along after Scarecrow calls him, and uh, Batman goes and tries to take down Scarecrow. Scarecrow responds by saying, no matter what happens, I know I know what they were trying to steal. They were trying to steal something to counteract my fear gas, and that's why I need you to stop them. Batman is pretty convinced that uh, there's no real way to fix this except for saving the boy, regardless of what's going on. Scarecrow passes off a picture of the boy, and Batman heads downtown to actually find out who it is that uh, is trying to get this fear gas. Once he gets there... He's met with a bunch of henchmen that are dressed as Scarecrow lookalikes. After Batman takes them out, he uh, inside the building there's a person, and the person is the only one not wearing a mask and is being told that his father is on satellite to talk to him. We find out that this is Eli Strange, the man from a couple issues back that we find out is supposedly Hugo Strange's son. Hugo Strange warns his son, saying, Get out of here now. Batman's here, and he's going to capture you. Just take off. Leave everything that you've got. Um, as the kids, as the kid ignores his father, it's too late because Batman appears, takes down the henchman, and apprehends the boy, realizing that it is, in fact, Hugo Strange's son. As uh, we find out through the excerpt at the end, we find out that... Eli Strange was uh, is basically an orphaned son of Hugo Strange. And then we cut to the backup feature, which is focusing on Two-Face trying to get a bullet removed from him. The surgeon removes the bullet, and Two-Face is then sitting there talking to somebody from the government and finds out that There's a case that's happening, but the prosecutor is actually trying to get in touch with Harvey Dent. And Harvey Dent is trying to figure out exactly why he's trying to get in touch with Harvey Dent, even though the the prosecutor has actually tried to get with Harvey Dent's wife in the past as well. At the end of the the story, basically what ends up happening is Two-Face is told that uh, he needs to let him go because there's no real reason to... The prosecutor did send this man to talk to Two-Face and to set up a meeting, and once Harvey Dent actually finds out that happens, Harvey Dent reveals that the coin landed on the good side up, so uh, this guy is going to be let off the hook. So that is Detective Comics number 8.
Alright, I don't really know what exactly is going on in Detective Comics. I was pretty sure that the last issue did not wrap everything up as far as... Well, specifically, I mean, it did wrap up everything as far as the Penguin, that whole storyline that was going on with the Penguin. And it did wrap up what was going on with uh, Snakeskin and uh, Charlotte Rivers' sister, Jill. But it didn't wrap anything up with Charlotte. We have no idea what happened to Charlotte. And last thing we know, Charlotte was on a life raft full of ice to stop the blood flow uh, so she didn't bleed out. That was the last time we saw her. So here we are in issue 8. Where does the story pick up? Nowhere around it. Nowhere at all around it. As a matter of fact, it almost appears as if this was a one-off issue because we were just counting down the days to the Night of Owls tie-in issue. Wait, not tie-in. Standalone issue. And in that regard, I mean, this is odd because Tony Daniel was saying Scarecrow was coming up, but was it really only supposed to be for one issue? And... It really wasn't that great of a story. I mean, it ties that Eli Strange character from issues ago that we saw, I think it was back in January. I think it was December or January that we saw this Eli Strange character pop up in the back of the book before. And it was really kind of anticlimactic. Oh, wow, he's got to save this boy. Really, the boy is actually Eli Strange, who's Hugo Strange's orphan son. I don't know, it, it really just didn't feel like anything. And then the whole Two-Face backup story, the art was great because it was Seisman Kodransky's art, but the story was just like, again, where are we going with this? Two-Face gets a bullet. Then he's met with somebody who wants to set up a meeting with the, process, process, the Gotham prosecutor. Why? Who really cares why? It, 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 there's nothing that happens. I mean, I understand that you only have so many pages for the backup, but I just felt like... I get the feeling that once Batman number 8 comes out this week, and we read Batman number 8, we're not actually going to be thinking to ourselves, what was the point of this backup? Because there will be a point to the backup. There is no point to this backup. It's just a two-faced story that f falls very loosely with what's going on anywhere else. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't fall in with anything. And then when we get back to the fact that... Uh, it, really what it reminds me of is the backup features that were in the back of Streets of Gotham for all that time. And there was a Two-Face one for a while, where it was just randomly Two-Face trying to flip the coin and see which side it lands on. You know, this has been done a thousand times. Do something interesting with the character instead of, oh, this prosecutor wants to meet with me. You, I don't believe you. I, I think we should find out, otherwise I'm going to kill you. Who cares? You know, I... I don't like what's going on with this book. I still cannot figure out how it's consistently selling well, other than it's just still flowing on that it's a Batman book, and Scott Snyder did a great job in Detective Comics, and maybe it's still getting a good rap from that. I have no idea. I would love... I'm going to put I'm gonna put the call out there again. Anybody who's reading Detective Comics, I would love you to send me an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and tell me why you are enjoying Detective Comics. It's not that it's a horrible book, it's just I don't feel like there's enough going on to warrant it being in the top ten books. So please, send me your emails and let me know. I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Warning! The following review contains coarse language, oh biased perspectives, and angry black man syndrome. Listeners, discretion is advised. Y'all know how I feel about this sticking title, and this 
is more more of the same. This is crap. <laughs> the story in itself is fine. I actually like the one and done nature of Batman going up against the Scarecrow. That's fun. I like the Scarecrow. But what do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> is Tony Daniel writing Batman as like a roided out Frank Miller embarrassment? Every single scene is either on his like you know clenched ginger spider's desk teeth or his wincing eyes, which don't really look at anything. Every character except for Gordon that he runs into, he basically just runs up and like and like knocks him over like like the Tasmanian devil. I could not stand this freaking issue, and I I honestly wanted to like it when I, when I saw what kind of issue it was going for. This was inept. I hate Tony Daniels Batman. It makes me so angry, and it's like. You know, I'm yelling now, and I probably shouldn't. But this this is my review. Like, I don't know how I don't know personally how Celeste's Batman or Josie's Batman or Dustin sees Batman. But my personal take on the character, what I, what I do like, which is you know subjective, I like him a lot more as he's supposed to. And I've said this before. I'm a broken record on this. He's supposed to be cool. You know, he's supposed to be like this sleek, mysterious guy. Yeah, he yeah he can throw it out if he needs to, but he's a lot more. He moves differently than what you think he might. He's like a dumb monster running around, just like beating everybody up. I really don't like it. Like, they, they rip off Dark Knight Returns when he runs through the wall to get Digger Jones. He goes up against Scarecrow. Scarecrow's like, ah, oh, let me tell you this one clue, Batman. And this thing, he just runs up and beats him up. You know? He, he says, oh, I have to play it safe to save the boy. He just runs in there and beats him up. He starts breaking the kid's bones before he realizes, oh, wait, wait you're, the, you're the kid in the picture. Whoops. I'm sorry. My bad. I saved, I saved the city. For now, yeah. one out of five batterings. I'm sure I'm going to get a, uh, oh, yeah, here we go again comment. But I didn't think this was that bad. Oh, here we go again. Thank you. <laughs> well, the main story, the the pretty much one and done Scarecrow story, I thought was pretty decent. It definitely kept my interest. The art, although a bit inconsistent, was... Was decent. What we come to expect from Daniel, I thought he was actually written written pretty well in it. I know Don obviously disagrees strongly, strongly. but I I didn't think he was written too um, menacingly. Or I don't mean really understand what Daniel goes for when he tries to do his uh, dark gritty detective. I th- I think Don did hit up something which was pretty funny in that. Pretty much all he does is just run up, seesaw, and beat them up, and then be like, and then asks questions later. Uh, it was definitely definitely felt a bit like Arkham City to me, the video game, obviously, with uh, especially Batman just bursting through the wall to attack someone. It felt like a cutscene from the game, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought the the one and done story worked well. It brought back the Eli Strange character from the back up several months ago. I agree with uh, John Roke did a a really good article on the website as part of the What's Bothering TVU in a defense for Tony Daniel. And he was saying how lots of people pick up on the fact that he just leaves storylines open and plot points hanging. And that, yeah, sometimes he forgets about them. But other writers do do it too. It's, for some reason, people pick up on Tony Daniel doing it a lot. But he does return to things, and I'm sure he will return to Charlotte Rivers. If not, then I retract that statement. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the main storyline. As for the backup, I'm a bit annoyed that it's, it's so pointless because, you know, adding just 
paying Morphus, I did feel ripped off as much as I enjoyed the the first not half, but you know the main story. Paying for this extra backup, I did feel ripped off. I love the art, but it's in this portion of the book that I think Daniel's writing it's really to, back to the old standard that we're used to from his Batman run. Uh, I think one of the lines that particularly stood out is clean up and sew up the wound I will tend to the most corrupt portion his mind <laughs> that was abysmal and <laughs> I was kind of expecting like well this guy he's like you're not who you say you are so I'm going to torch you he actually like there's a guy there with a blowtorch and you can just see the guy's face is just dripping blood and then he goes oh no yeah it landed on the good side you're free to go so it's, it's like Okay, you're going to let him live, but in what state? I mean, I was I was kind of expecting, like, reading that, to get some kind of Batman Forever level, you know, Two-Face who keeps flipping the coin until he gets the thing he wants, but at least he didn't go that far into ridiculousness. But the two, the backup definitely let it down, but for the main story and for the issue as a whole, I'll give it three out of five batterings. The backup, I guess I'll start with the backup to be different and throw a kink into everything. The backup has a very penguin, pain, and prejudice sort of feel to me. I, don't, I could have been alone in that. But, For you know, I. Reasons. Same August. <laughs> Yeah, but I do wonder if we're we're supposed to or we will come to respect the character more or perhaps less through it all. Oh, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I like Two-Face, but it seemed like a very strange – like, it, it didn't really hold my attention. Like, I found myself just kind of really quickly reading, not really <laughs> reading it word for word and still getting the same effect. The main story seems very misplaced to me, almost like a misdirection. You know, let's focus on Scarecrow when the real problem is actually Eli Strange. What was Scarecrow's role in the whole thing? Was he leading Batman to Strange because he doesn't want competition, or was he working with him? I I don't know. The Catwoman beginning is ironic, given the way things ended in Catwoman issue 6, I think? And, and it's funny because he says, when he just leaves her, he he should have said something like, I leave her because that's all I do now. But, you know, he he leaves her and he feels a little bit bad, but hey, he did it before, so how is this any different? You would think now that he would, you know, try to get her some medical attention, but I guess uh, <laughs> cause that's too much to ask. I understand wanting to start off with a big action scene, but I feel like it would have been better to start off with the Gordon Batman scene. Uh just because beginning with Catwoman and hearing that monologue sort of makes you think, you know, what the heck, given how they left things in Catwoman. But I guess I should just put blinders on and ignore all sorts of other um, other books, just focus on this one book. And, you know, nothing really is explained with Catwoman. Gee, I guess I'm focusing on Catwoman a lot. You know, like how she got the job or how she was exposed to gas in the first place. We find out about Digger and off-panel land yet again. Where's my train ticket there? But that doesn't answer other questions. It's just a big question mark for me. And I totally agree with uh, Dustin. Take a shot. <laughs> because... Yeah, we we don't really wrap up the previous story arc. I mean, I guess it's kind of wrapped up, but I think there are still many unanswered questions there. So this is, I don't know, is this just Tony Daniels' way of writing and kind of whetting our appetites and wanting more? Do we want more? Who knows? Uh, Two out of five batarangs. 
Alright, so Detecticomics number 8 gets a total of 2 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batgirl number 8. Number eight, No Darker Shadow. Writer, Gil Simone. Penciler, Ardian Sioff and Aletha Martinez and Vicente Cifuentes. Inker, Vicente Cifuentes and Aletha Martinez. Colors, Ulysses Areola. Picking up where the previous issue left off, Batgirl is still in the sewers clutching Danny the Weasel Weaver, whom she recognizes as a man on Joker's left during that traumatic night oh so long ago. As she questions him and gives him some legal advice, well, given her passes, you know, uh, an attorney and congresswoman, um, the other grotesque flacky man comes up behind her, but she decks him, catches him before he hits his head on a step. Danny then asks if he knows Batgirl because she seems familiar and assumes he is going to be taken to the cops. But wait! Batgirl let him go? As he runs off, she thinks about all that has transpired and the fact that she just let someone who had a hand in a murder go. Babs goes home and reflects on that traumatic night oh so long ago. Eats an apple, finally opens a gift her mother gave her on Christmas, thinks about Dinah's words of wisdom from the previous issue, and decides to call her mother. At Grotesque's apartment, Grotesque is jealous that Danny is getting Batgirl's attention and not himself. He decides to exploit this. At Babs' senior's apartment, Barbara is overjoyed to see Babs wearing her grandmother's necklace. But wait! Before it accelerates, Babs wants to know why she left. Barbara explains that she left because she loves Babs and to save Babs from Barbara. Flashback to a scene with James Jr. Barbara saw that he was different and didn't want to believe it. James Jr. comes inside and wants to show her a present. It seems that he killed Alaska, Babs's Siamese cat. He blamed it on her, saying that it was her fault and that if she didn't leave, even worse things would happen to Babs. Barbara could really see more blood in the dirt and decided to leave. Barbara explains that she returned because she got help and strength. Babs needs time to process it all and runs out crying. She goes to her van and suits up, all the while wondering, what if? She finds Danny's location via Dad's parole records. Grotesque is there and talks lovey-dovey to Batgirl, speaking of their first child, and wondering why she worried about a nothing like Danny. Energizing himself on the lightning, he gets ready to strike. Danny hits him from behind. Grotesque shocks him with a bolt. Then Batgirl goes to work. She beats Grotesque into submission, shouting, I hate you, I reject you, and finally understanding why Bruce stays so cool and detached. Batgirl goes over to Danny. Here's the uh, the climax here. He wants to be set free. She says not this time. She lets him know she checked up on him, and he says that there is no work for an ex-con in Gotham. I guess he didn't think about leaving Gotham. He didn't sign up for killing, and he has done bad things and one good thing. As life begins to leave his body, he goes through the traumatic night so long ago. 
trying to take the part of an uncaring observer. But Batgirl sees through it all and reveals that he called the police when he left. He just couldn't stick to the plan. Meanwhile, ten blocks away, Alicia is getting off early at Benny's, the club she works at. On her way out, she is accosted by a man whose face remains hidden for the time being. Flashback to Mary Jane Watson. He asks her to go someplace <laughs> he asks her to go someplace dry for a cup of coffee and she finally gives in telling him her name. And who is this creeper you ask? Well, it happens to be James Gordon Jr. Bum bum bum. Next up the night of the owls. All right, Batgirl number 8. I had a problem with the art in this issue. It seemed as if everyone's faces were odd, but like we we had the flashback between Black Canary and and uh, Batgirl, and honestly, both of their faces looked absolutely horrible. Especially Black Canary, it looked like I know this is going to sound bad, but she was constipated. And then going back to I guess last month when I complained about how Barbara Gordon Seniors was portrayed in the art, she again reverted back to being the younger mother that she was in the previous issues compared to what she was last month. Last month, she suddenly, like I said, gained, you know, she aged about 15 years by visiting James Gordon. And, you know, she had her hair up in a bun. She suddenly looked like she put on some pounds. Suddenly this month, her hair is back down and she looks like she's just a slightly older version of Barbara Gordon. I don't know what's going on here. I mean, I don't understand why the art is so inconsistent book to book. You know... If you have different artists, that's one thing. But the editor should be at least trying to tell these artists, Hey, listen, last month, we didn't have her looking like this. This month, we don't have her looking like this. you got to keep these things similar. Regardless of, you know, you can let your artists do what they want. You can't change the characters to look like there's an age difference of 15 years. That's a big difference. That being said, besides the art, the story was just complete complete crap i mean the the thing is and i and i'm gonna let don and stella go on this a a lot more than myself but i'm just gonna say this at the end of the issue last time we were led to believe that this big thing about her having to do with her dwelling on the past was just going to continue with her seeing this guy as a henchman for another group it just so happens that he happens to be a henchman of a villain that she just happened to come across because the birds of prey just happened to be busy the next morning and refused to go against this grotesque character. But here's the thing that doesn't make any sense. Number one, she lets him go. Why does she let him go? Why does she just decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to let this guy go. We find out why because later on in the story we find out, okay, this guy was the reason why she supposedly lived because he called the police and told them where she was when she got shot by the Joker. Okay, that's fine. It's it's fine why she let him go in the first place. But then why does she make sure to tell him, sorry, I can't let you go this time? So was she just using him as bait to get grotesque to come out again? I don't know. That That's, that's, that's what it seems like to me, because it's like, oh, I, I'm going to let you go, but then grotesque is going to make sure that I he uses you to find me, in turn, I can find him, and because of that, grotesque, and I will fight, and then also, after the fight's over, I'm still going to say, hey, by the way, I've got to take you to jail this time. What changed? Nothing. He just saved her life yet again. So why would she say, by the way, you have to go to jail now? 
she's like, thanks for saving my life the second time. Sorry, you're going to go back to jail. And he's sitting there bleeding to death. And he's like, well, if the choice is between dying or going to jail, I'm going to die. To which she says, oh, really? Okay. I mean, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I, 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 I don't get it at all. She, then she has no problem letting the guy sit there and bleed to death. She doesn't perform any kind of first aid on him. She doesn't try to stop the bleeding. She just says, she starts talking to him. Because she needs to clear her mind of why he did what he did back when the Joker shot her. She doesn't, I mean, we're consistently seeing this character completely out of character. She's not trying to save anybody. If anything, I mean, last issue we saw her just watch Grotesque kill the guy. She sat there and watched him. Didn't do a thing about it. This issue, she's beating the crap out of Grotesque so brutally... It's just, it's, ins- it's, it's, to me, it was just way, way over the top. And if anything, it was, she was doing it because the guy murdered somebody because she watched him and let him do it. So if anything, she's punishing the guy more so because she didn't do anything about the murder in the first place. That seems like a character fault. And quite honestly, it's about time for Batman to pop in the issue and say, listen, Barbara, get your crap together or you're getting that that bat symbol off your chest. Because that's what's happening here. One and a half out of five batterings. This issue is absolutely woeful. This is this is like the this is worse. This is this is about as bad as like Death of Oracle. Like, seriously, I think this is worse. There is, there was the only scene I liked was when Barbara took the guy down at the beginning and saved him, saved his head from cracking on the step. But that is completely and utterly drowned out like sewage water compared to everything else that happens in this thing. Like Justin said, first of all, she finds out this guy is Joker's henchman from way back when. First of all, there's no. I went back and read the last issue. Those there's no reason those guys are unconscious at the at the end of that. They're just there, like laying down for no reason at all. She didn't do anything to them. Grotesque didn't do anything to them. They're just there for story reasons. She lets him go for no reason. He's an accessory to murder, as she says, you know. And he's breaking parole, and she's let him go. And then she says, "What in God's name have I done?" There's no reason in the story or the character for her to do that. It just happens because it's a character conflict. She talks about, oh, I survived, but something went wrong. That doesn't make any sense. This guy, this grotesque guy, is like the most pantomime villain we've seen yet in this title. It's like, ooh, Batgirl, she's lovely, isn't she? It's, it's like, uh, it's like a snidely whiplash. And worst of all, Gail Simone ruins three classic Batman stories in this single thing. She absolutely destroys uh, the, Scott, uh, the Scott Snyder, James Jr. storyline. Because if you guys remember, and I know everyone here has read that storyline, obviously. James Jr. wasn't like this. You always wonder what was going on with him, but there was never like this clear-cut evidence of him saying, yes, I'm going to commit this crime, I'm going to tell you about it, whatever. It, it, was, it was, that was totally, that was so cool about that storyline, you know? It, it was ambiguous. We didn't know until way until near the end that he actually was crazy. But not only that... But you're telling me a 10-year-old boy kills an animal, tells his mom, for no reason, that it's all your fault, and the mom runs away? Did anybody for a millisecond believe that? And she says, I must save you from myself. God, this sucks. We, we tried to record this uh, at an earlier date than we are, and something happened, and we had to delay it. So for the sake of this podcast, I reread this issue, and I could seriously barely get through it, because... Every single page, there was something crazy that was going on. The dialogue is awful. 
the characterization makes zero sense. Barbara has these, or Barbara has these horrible emotional extremes from one end to another. She does destroy Grotesque at the end for no real reason. And what's even worse is that if you think about it, they say that Barbara was 12 and James Jr. was 10. So, okay, Barbara was two years older than James Jr. Where was she during Batman Year One? Hey, the Batman story that, you know, that, that's the only continuity, right? Yeah, right. And, all of, and then at the, end, at the end, this guy who has no idea Barbara's Batgirl says, well, let me tell you this one thing where I was with the Joker and we shot this woman, and I didn't care. I didn't care at all. I felt good about it. I had no problem with it. But I called the cops anyway for no reason. Even though the story di- directly contradicts actually what happened in the story with her roommate calling, he calls her for no reason. He tells Barbara Gordon for no reason, and then he dies essentially for no reason. This is easily the worst issue of the entire year. The in- this is easily the worst issue since the entire series, and oh, God, I'm out of breath. Zero out of five batterings. Batgirl number eight make Joe feel sad. This really was abysmal. I. It actually upset me reading this, at how bad it was, how many things Gail Simone managed to ruin, the inconsistent art. I mean, the art was probably the least of my worries. This was so bad. Don pretty much summed up everything in that, right down to the fact that my favourite part of the book was where she stops the guy smashing his head on the the curb or whatever it is in the storm drain. I, I don't get why the villain's called Grotesque, you see his mask getting smashed off and he doesn't appear to have any kind of hideous abnormalities or anything like that. He's a collector who likes to collect nice things and for some reason he's called grotesque. There's that bizarre him opening his heart as he was gushing blood, just saying, just telling his story to Batgirl. I mean, I think it's implied that he kind of recognises her, but it's stupid. If this guy... This guy, like a lowly criminal, can recognize her. How comes no one else can? It's ridiculous. I think the whole thing was he's, he he made the reference to her hair. Oh, there was this girl once that I was involved that I had a I was part of a crime thing that happened with this girl. She had hair just like yours. Well, then that's sad. That's really sad that there's only so many women with hair like that. Her mom, <laughs> Kate Kane, <laughs> Phoenix. So I, I I think it's safe to assume that Jim Gordon knows his daughter's Batgirl because I hope yeah, so. I'm pretty I'm pretty. Sure. He's a better detective than that guy. Yeah. The line "I hate you, I reject you, I reject you" was poor at best. I didn't understand her in the mono- monologue at the time where she says, "I always wondered how Bruce stays so cool, so detached." I get it now. It's so he doesn't become what I am right at this moment. But it doesn't say how. It just says why he does it, but she prefixed that with how does he do it. It doesn't make any sense. I was stuck on that one page for about ten minutes trying to work out what she was talking about. It's the bit uh, where she just rapes the James Gordon Jr. storyline. Yeah, she does. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's my exact words for it. <laughs> Is it a bit, I mean, obviously it's implied that it's going on longer than it is, but if someone's never read that storyline before, you know, just reading just the New 52, and then reads this page of her saying, I saved you from our son, where he says, oh, mommy, I've got a present for you. And she goes, a present in the yard? James, you're scaring me. What? And it's a 10-year-old boy, and she's going like, I have to, oh, no, I have to save my daughter and my husband from this 10-year-old boy. Who's a cop? 
It's sorry, ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's beyond poor. It's it's almost laughable, but I'm closer to tears. I, I don't know. So James Gordon Jr. is back at the end, obviously. I wonder how long for. Do you think this is going to be another one of those villains? He's just around for like one story arc and then goes. He gets up by the Batgirl and she's like, oh, he's so strong. I can't fight him. <laughs> this is awful. Uh, one out of, no, half Batarang. Maybe he's that Nighthawk guy. Nightwatch? Nightfall. Nightfall. Maybe. Well, guess what, folks? The honeymoon between Gil Simone and the fans is over. (laughs) We've been saying since issue something. I mean, I've been saying it since issue one. I know other people have enjoyed it. But uh, I think the reviews are coming down low, too. And something needs to change. I thought issue six was bad. This is either equally or worse. And I remember that Titanic line. I probably never forget that Titanic line. But throughout this entire issue, I kept literally thinking, what the heck? Every other page, like something happened. Oh, my gosh, what is going on? You know, it begins with the first scene uh, because basically Batgirl is putting her non-existent law degree to use to an unconscious baddie because they were unconscious before, but now he's unconscious or now he is conscious. And for once, Babs has some luck. Let's think about how many times she's been hit in the back of the head i mean it's by gretel at least once i know she got decked by uh bruce wayne i feel like mirror probably is another one but in this case she actually has some spidey sense and uh prevents being hit in the head and then she's magically able to prevent that guy from hitting his own head and i mean case after case she's been like spider-man she's had this terrible luck and then all of a sudden she has really good luck in this issue so interesting but the real shocker the real wth moment that i had was when she let this guy go i still don't understand it yes this guy may have helped her and was trying to do right by his life but you know he's still messed up and he still needed to pay for that she completely goes against everything she was taught letting this guy go but locking up the other guy that's, I mean, obviously, Batman would show sympathy, yes, but he would also say you need to pay for that. Now, if we go along the lines of Dustin's theory that she was using him as a pawn, which I don't, number one, in this case, I don't think she was that intelligent and looking that um, forward. But if she really were, that was really negligent of her because Grotesque seems like the guy in my opinion, seeing him kill somebody over a bottle of wine that probably would have killed Danny in a fit of jealousy. But he doesn't, so I guess that was a good chance she took. But it was still kind of negligent to play him like that. I mean, Dinah, remember in Birds of Prey, Dinah didn't want to use um, Donovan Morgan Grant's character. But, uh, so, the, it, it, I don't know. This is just not the background. She would not have done that. She would have at least tailed him. Um, On her way back from the sewer, she says, I thought I was over this. And this is like the quote of the century because, really, when did she ever think she was over all this? How many times has she had these, like, PTSD moments focusing on the killing joke over and over again? But she thought she was over it? Oh, please. She comes home. She needs to talk to somebody, but obviously there's no one to talk to. And so, in a clever bit of writing to get her mom back into the picture, she decides to talk to her. Really? Where's Dinah? You broke into her apartment to talk to her before, but all of a sudden you want to mend fences with your mother? Probably not the best idea to talk to her right after you went through what you went through. Again, it seems forced. 
Let's see. Uh, definitely want to talk about, I'm going to skip a lot of things. You can hear my full review on Backroll to Oracle. You know, now I understand that we like comics because it's able to go places that we can't go in real life. But I think we all like to see some sort of realism. And it's really the, the speech that I look forward to. Um, does the speech fit the character or not? And other sort of – number one, Babs decides to wear the necklace her mother gives her. And when her mother comments on it, Babs says, Mom, stop, before this accelerates. Who would ever say that? I, what? <laughs> before this accelerates. And number one, how can you not expect the – or number two, I guess. How can you not expect the relationship to accelerate when you go over to her house and wear a gift that she gave you? Kind of strange. There was another quote I pulled, and this was from Grotesque. Yeah, everything coming out of his mouth I hate. Grotesque. Um, oh, you are a spicy sliver. Clearly a prize worth winning. I think we should name our first child Hubert. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who is this guy? Oh, it's just awful, awful yeah, things that's, that's coming up. The explanation that Barbara Sr. gives for leaving is ridiculous. We've already gone over this. But, you know, how did she save – how did she leave to save Babs? You know, James was the bad seed in this situation. Why didn't Barbara just man up, you know, as they say, and get James some help? Yes, I understand that children are scary in this instance, but I, I still think that you and your husband could probably help a 10-year-old. Plus, you were the one who needed help. I mean, she just seems like a coward, but yet she went. She she said that she, uh, what, she gets strength and she got help and she came back and she's stable now. I don't know. It, I don't know. I guess my final thing, or final two, is this a way for Babs as a character to get past this particular story and move on? You know, can she finally forgive? There was definitely more to the story than just the actors involved, and I hope we haven't invested so much time and energy in this side story, and the killing joke for that matter, for it to finish like that. I don't know. I I just, this death scene, it plays out like something from Shakespeare. I don't dare you. I'm sorry. Uh, well, it's like, let me get everything out right right in this instance. I think that she would still hate him more for being involved, you know, in that traumatic night. Yes, he's trying to change, but I think you still hold on to a grudge. I mean, I had a, a good example, but I decided not to, not to bring it on just because I didn't want it to seem coarse or anything. But I don't know. He stood by and watched and only later called the police. So I, I don't think that she would be quite as forgiving, especially with how much this has impacted her life. And then Alicia, oh boy, I thought she'd be smarter than this. A guy this persistent probably has to be bad news. And uh, I'm just not, I'm, I'm a little afraid how Simone is going to handle James Jr. given the, the current track record. But I think I'll stop my, my ramblings here. I'm just really disappointed. I mean, this, if we had to go into a killing joke, it could have been handled better and there could have been better villains. And again, I'm going to say it for the 50th time, I think that we threw too many characters in at once and we really needed to focus on the title character, Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl, and then, you know, moved on. And it's just, it's really disappointing. um, I'm going to give it a one. I don't know what the good things are that I see in it, but I can't tell if it's better or worse than uh, number six, and I gave number six a one, so... (laughs) <laughs> it's equally as bad. So one out of five batterings. Can I just say real quick, I won't take too much time at all, but like this, if anybody's out there listening and who, who is not reading this book, we, this isn't us, us, our opinion. There's, there are, I've seen opinions elsewhere. I've seen people like this book, but by and large, 
people are seeing this what it is. This is not a good title. It's, it has nothing to do with who's in the cow. It has nothing to do with, you know, like, continuity. Objectively, the writing is very, very poor. And it, is, it just, don't, do not read this. But if you are reading it and you are enjoying it, I want to hear from you. Because that's what we want to do. We want to hear from the people who re- are reading these books and like the books. And we'd like to know why. Because maybe it's just a matter of... it. Well, it's obviously a difference of opinion. But why is it that we have such a strong opinion on one, you know, on one side compared to fans out there who do like the book? We ha- I have heard from fans on Twitter saying that they're not liking Batgirl just as much as we do not like Batgirl, so that's not really a surprise. But I'd like to hear from fans who are enjoying Batgirl, because I know there's people out there. And I know that there's there's people that are reviewing the book out there on various blogs and things like that that are giving the book high marks, and I'd like to know why you think it's a good book. Then, not to dismiss you at all, but then I'd also like to know what other books you're reading that you think are good books as well, because I'd like to get an idea of from your perspective of comics in general, because if you are really liking Batgirl, but really not liking Batman, well, then we know where the difference of opinion is. We have a different idea of what is, what is good and what is bad. So I'd like to hear from you uh, fans out there. So podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. All right, so that is going to give Batgirl number eight a total of half a battering out of five. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number eight. Somewhere out in Gotham Town, something bad is going down. Only brave Batman and Robin dare to write what's wrong. Women will be leading clues, laughing when the joke's on you. Penguins flying high, Catwoman's coming on real strong. Cried is like a wild disease, have you met Mr. Freeze? Scarecrow gives you shivers and two faceless in the night. When you think you reach the end, single your only friend. Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin, it's your eight. Born to Kill, Black Dawn. Written by Peter J. Damasi, illustrated by Patrick Gleason. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Nobody Battle, Batman and Robin escape the sinking submarine out of the out of the Batmobile, which uh, can fly. If you forgot, R- Batman rushes Robin to the Batcave so he and Alfred can sort of perform some surgery, seeing what his injuries are. There's, there was one shot that's re- that Batman is reminding the reader, you know, don't want another Robin to die because hey, one died before. And Alfred's like, so how did you guys escape? And he's like, uh, what's, what's, what are the police going to do with nobody? He's like, there is nobody. There is, there is nobody anymore. Damien killed him. And so Bruce goes in, uh, to one of the many portraits of his parents and says that he can barely stand the fact that he had was responsible for uh, – well, he, he, he would rather be more responsible for nobody's death than Damien. And he's not sure what to do and he kind of passes out over his injuries. He gives the recording that we saw a few issues back of him explaining his and nobody's and Ducard's uh, origins and gives them to Damien who listens to them. And although it's not really said in the issue, it's implied that there's a time skip where they kind of heal their injuries. Um, Damien meets Bruce in a room of Wayne Manor that was up to this point never used again. It was his father's den. And he explains to him that, you know, of course, fighting crime all these years, I've gotten the urge to kill. But you need to understand that we cannot do that as crime fighters. It betrays certain principles that are, you know, you, you cannot, you can't betray them, essentially. And Damien's like, I want to believe that, I'm sure, but I don't know what to do because 
I want to be like you, but I, I can't be like you if I don't know who I am first. And Batman says, or Bruce Wayne says, uh, just be the best Damien Wayne you can be because you're my son. So that's a nice moment. They say that, you know, you're going to live with what you did. You're going to remember it all your life and just try to do your best by making amends. So but for the time being, while we heal our broken bodies, let's just do something mundane. So they play with a new dog, which Damien has named Titus, or Titus, to be on your pronunciation. And Alfred watches over his two sons, act like a normal father and son. But then, you know, it's a Batman book, and eventually nightfall strikes, and the bat signal shines in the sky. And Dark Knight and the Boy Wonder look up and run off as Alfred asks, is one night too much to ask? Next, the Talon strikes. All right. Batman Robin number eight. Well, first off, I want to say I obviously was wrong about Damien not actually killing uh, nobody. Clearly, he did. And I have to say, I think the way it was portrayed in the book made perfect sense. You know, it's just something that it really shows the true relationship between father and son in this book. We have Bruce basically telling Damien, listen, I've I've come under this urge a number of times. But it's, but knowing who we are is what keeps me from doing this thing. It keeps me from killing these people. And when you think about it, how many times has Bruce come to, come to the point where he wants to kill somebody? How many times, or well, I mean, okay, one instance, he wanted to kill the Joker after the Joker killed Jason Todd. I mean, there, there's been plenty of situations where Batman has wanted to kill somebody for doing something, but he's held himself back, or in some cases other allies have held him back from doing something like that because it is something that you do have to live with for the rest of your life the other interesting thing about this is that you know this in the entire first seven issues of the story has basically been the two working on completely different pages and this comes it's basically like issue eight comes to fruitation where we get the two characters getting on the same page so to me, I think it's going to be really interesting seeing what goes forward with this series because now they're working together under the same page. They, they understand each other a lot more than they did before. I'm really glad that they didn't play it in a way where, you know, Bruce freaks out on Damien and is like, I can't believe you killed nobody. You can't do that. Because that would have completely ruined it. I'm glad they played it the way they did. I think it was very smart. My only complaint was I really didn't like... Some of the the faces, specifically Alfred's face in some of the panels, it just looked kind of weird. Especially when, like at the end of the book when they were outside throwing the ball at the dog. I really thought to myself that I, I couldn't figure out who the heck Alfred was when he was sitting there because his eyes were closed and he was drinking a cup of coffee and it looked like somebody had like some giant sloppy, mopey face. and was, I didn't know what the heck was going on there. But that's a very minor complaint on this book. I thought this this was a good book. I can't wait to see what's going to happen with Bruce and Damien actually teaming up going forward. I'm going to give this four and a half out of five. You know it's funny. <laughs> because, as I said before, I this is one of my favorite titles of the New 52. I was always looking forward to it. And I genuinely, genuinely and generally really like most of the issues. And here the last time we reviewed this book, I really didn't like it that much. Because I thought it was basically over the top. But I got to say that it can go from giving, I think I give that a one or something, to uh, this issue, which I really enjoyed. And I was kind of skeptical because I was like, well, okay, we've, we've got this big over-the-top 90s comic book. I didn't really like it. How are they going to do this? Because I, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. 
I thought that there was no real way Damien was going to be Robin again. Because this this reminded me of the beginning of because Dustin mentioned uh, Death in the Family. This reminded me of the very beginning when Jason is kind of proven to be psychologically unfit, and Batman says, "Until we know, until you deal with the death of your parents, you're benched. You can't be Robin anymore." I really thought that Bruce was going to at least ground, quote unquote ground Damien from being Robin until they sort things out. But I like the way that it was played. I really I love this issue. I love the way like it was that slow kind of scene of them escaping the the sinking ship. And I like – this is something that I feel isn't really done in comics anymore where characters kind of deal with the consequences and they just kind of talk things out like actual people. There is no, well, Batman, there's there's another villain you need to fight while Damien rests in the Batcave. No, no, there's a whole night where Batman and Alfred and Damien talk about what happened, deal about what happened, you know, recovering from their injuries, you know, express remorse over what happened. And I feel that Tomasi nailed both characters. I love the scene where Bruce is talking to his parents, like, you know, I really wish I had killed him and not Damien, because, you know, I've never really thought about that idea that he feels he'd rather cross the line himself than have one of his uh, protégés, let alone his own son, do it for him. And I, and I like that explanation that, you know, if a lesser writer would have made Damien say, you're wrong, uh, father, you should have killed that guy. But he's, no, he's saying, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm just a kid. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. And that's natural for a kid to say. And I lo- it, it just it reminds you that these characters are people. They aren't just like the crazy assassin boy and the robotic Batman. This is this is everything that Tony Daniels Batman isn't. He's a person. You know, he's he's obviously a very psychologically traumatized person, but he's a person none, nonetheless. And whenever that's sort of like shown through in the characters' actions through, after, after certain situations, it just makes me enjoy the the, the characters and the issue all more. I thought the art was really good. I, I sort of am starting to see what Joe says about Gleason's art in that when the panels show less detail, they kind of come less appealing. But certain scenes, like uh, where Bruce puts his hand on Damien's shoulder, I really like the faces. I really like Damien's face there because it, it just looks very expressive. And um, I, I, I love this issue, and I especially love the ending where they look at the bat, uh, the bat signal and rush off. That's, that's you know, I... I love I love that kind of stuff. I'm giving this uh, five out of five batarangs. I thought this was a phenomenal issue, and I, I was surprised in in saying that because all the way through, you know, I, I've not really been that keen. I, I said I quite like the last issue, but that again, like I said, that was more of a comparison to the rest of the series. But this issue, I actually really enjoyed it just for what it was. It was, I thought, a, a really really well written book. I thought. As much as I don't like the the style of the art, it definitely did well in what it was doing. I thought so, some of the images I thought were very good. That one of uh, Bruce carrying Damien off on his shoulder, wading through the water with flames all around them, I think's mm-hmm. an excellent illustration. Don was saying how you know it's it's nice that these characters are just talking it out, and it it's good cause it feels honest in what they're saying. Like where Bruce is saying, you know, don't don't think I've never thought about it because that that's true. I'm sure. At points, you know, it's a common thing where people say, you know, how comes you haven't killed and stuff? It would just get rid of the problem. And in doing that, you would have saved, you know, thousands of lives. If you just killed the Joker the third time you met, he wouldn't have killed so many people. uh, Barbara would never have gone through the trauma of being shot through the spine. She'd probably be a decent character. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it's it's honest because it's talking about, you know, that line... And I, I think this is just a really excellent, really well-written book. And it's so easy, 
especially for me, just to think, oh no, I haven't liked what that writer's done. I'm gonna just not like this, just for the point of not liking it. I can say that I don't like saying if someone else does, you know, just to be different or something. But I genuinely thought this was really good. There are a couple of points I got a bit lost where Bruce walked in and gave Damien the memory stick, which he plugged into his MP3 player. I didn't know what that was at first, and I wasn't even sure if that was nobody <laughs> returning. But uh, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was <Yes>. honest, <laughs> when they started playing the audio, I obviously understood, and I think that was a really nice moment where Bruce just sort of walks in and gives him that, and then walks out and lets him listen to it all. And again, at the end, I wasn't exactly sure what was going on just with the bat symbol, if there were if Bruce was running off just leaving Damien there or if they both kind of knew that they were Batman and Robin together, they were both going to go and fight this together as a team. And I like that. If that's what it was, which seemed to be the case when Dom was going through it, I like that. And I I just thought this was a really, really well-written book. And it was, like I said, it was just honest. And it was nice to get inside these characters' heads and their relationship because we haven't really got that so far. And this is the only book where we can... And it's nice to finally have that. I just thought it was really, really, really well written. So four and a half out of five batterings. Wow. Do you remember, friends? Do you remember how I was the positive one and I was always defending this particular book when everyone else was like, I'm sick of this, you know, and the, the father-son backlash. And I stuck with it. And I said, I think this is what it should be. And then here we are. Here we are. I am so pleased with this issue because the father-son relationship has made such strides as of late. And this was, you know, really the great push forward. Everything is out on the table. Damien and Bruce are both truthful with each other and are straightforward uh, about their natures. Uh, you know, I'm glad that Bruce gave Damien the tape. That was like when I saw that and, and he put, you know, the iPod um, ears in his ear. The iPod buds, there we go, in his ears. I thought, oh, oh, is he going to listen to that tape? And, you know, it, it makes all those things that Bruce said worthwhile because that was one of my questions a couple issues back is why is he recording this? Will it ever get to Damien? Because if it didn't, then there would have been no point and nothing would have gone forward with their relationship. I'm happy that Bruce admits to the darkness of his own soul and that he has those dark desires as well instead of making Damien seem like such a deviant. Um, Bruce really takes the part of, you know, that we're all flawed and and sinful beings, and I I just thought that was great. Even though killing Ducard was extreme, it wasn't like uh, Damien's savagery before that we've seen. But, you know, his reasons, I think, protecting the kingdom that he said and, and, and trying to help his father out, I thought were really sound. I don't want to end up like Ducard without a moral compass. I don't want to turn into a nobody. I want to be like you. I, I thought this was, oh, it was just so great. And having that entire conversation in Thomas's office was just really poignant there. Many of the pages have no dialogue whatsoever. And I think only certain books can pull this off. And the ones that do have really become some of my fast favorites. The art and the emotion flowing from these pages are both well done and really help further the story. And the final panel, I, I really love the final panel. It's able to meld, you know, symbols of the past, the present, and the future all together. What with the bat symbol and the bats flying in the sky, the, the two grave markers, and then the firefly on top of the baseball, if you remember the firefly um, symbol when nobody first kind of lured Damien into the dark side, I guess. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so... 
a great, great issue overall. I knew the relationship would get better in due time, and I think it worked well with the time it took. I, I think it would have been unbelievable had it been so quick, like Batgirl. But here we are. You know, they had the rough spot, and then he went kind of roguish, but he wasn't. He was all doing it for his father, and then he admits everything. Everything's out on the table. They have a great relationship now. And like Dustin, I can't wait to see how this goes forward. Five out of five. It was such a great book. So worthwhile. If I can... So can I just bring up that thing about the Firefly again? I I didn't really get that. Like, because we saw it before when he had the thing and then he closed his fist on it. Was that him, like... And he blocked... He had the light on his hand and he kind of blocked it out. Was that him trying to hold on to the light or is it symbolic of him like pushing it away and then in this one he just left it and it was there at the end or, and he's almost leaving it behind symbolism yeah but I don't, I don't understand I don't understand do you any of you get it or is it just kind of there to look cool I think it was just there to be, basically tie other things back together I was trying to work out if there's a deeper meaning but yeah, yeah well remember he squished the firefly before and now like yeah. you said he left it whole so he's too weak to do it <laughs> well or, or that his nature is truly changing yeah exactly yeah yeah I, yeah i think so too. don't call well, him weak you've, <laughs> once you've killed a man fireflies you know they just don't have the same effect oh boy all right so batman and robin number eight gets a total of four and a half out of five bad ranks let's move into our last book batwoman number eight The issue opens up, as we're used to, with Batwoman in the underground lair of Falcon fighting his hordes of monsters. We uh, get to see, for the first time, what some more of her weaponry from the DEO does with the weird arrowhead-looking thing, which appears to emit powers, sort of uh, meta-human powers, to take down all of the, the monsters. We then jump to Marrow's story one month ago, and we see the guy from the last issue called Rush and him becoming the hook with Marrow cutting off his hand and giving him the Ashoth, which is the the hook with the its own voice and powers which take over his body. We then jump to one week ago and Kate's story where Cameron Chase is confronting Kate about her not talking to Sawyer about the case that she was sent on, obviously because of her feelings for Sawyer. She doesn't want to get into any conflict we then jump to maggie's story six nights ago where maggie's transporting the soon character from the last issue to a location somewhere i don't think it said where and batwoman jumps on the boat to collect soon and accidentally tranquilizes sawyer with the deo tranquilizer which is tranquilizer laced with fear toxin and she's obviously upset about this then jump two weeks ago to Jacob's story, and he's talking to the doctor about feeling bet move, and the doctor is essentially saying that it was probably all in his head for all the stories about childhood memories, smells, and songs bringing people out of comas. It's it's rarely true. We then jump to Chase's story one week ago, where she's incognito, setting up a transport for soon to be taken to the DEO, and Batwoman essentially punches her in the face for making her attack. Sawyer without realising it. We then jump 
back to Batwoman's story where she's uh, continuing to fight Falcon and he's attacking her with a sword laced with Amazonian blood, which is able to cut through her special DEO armor. And just when we think all hope is lost, soon turns up with arrows made from another world to attack Falcon. The end. All right, Batwoman number eight. I'm going to go quick with this review. I thought this was interesting, although I think the multiple story point of view has kind of worn out its welcome with me. I thought it was good the first two, but now the problem is that they're starting to cross over way too much. When they when it first initially started off, it was we were seeing one character and their story, and we could see like Maggie Sawyer and. Her story was basically, like, her part of the issue was her story of meeting Kate Kane on a date at the local restaurant or something like that. It wasn't Maggie Sawyer coming in contact with uh, Batwoman who is trying to get somebody off a boat to lead to another story where it's skipping ahead to a different point and then the next story is... Wait, back going back in time to a different. It's I mean, it's starting to get really confusing. It was one thing where it was you weren't they weren't crossing the characters over, and I'm not saying the issue is bad. I think the Jacob story is getting. I mean, there. I mean, what's the point? Really, what's the point to have him have this big excerpt about how sometimes people move, sometimes people don't, sometimes you think they move and they really don't. I mean, that just seemed like a waste. I mean, really, what was the point of that? Put aside that one and look at uh, some of the other stories. We we get the the big explanation of how the claw became the claw. Okay, that was that was somewhat interesting. I'm still trying to figure out how Killer Croc has become this really big villain for Batwoman because really all he's become is another henchman for another villain, which is what he's always been in most of the stories. So I mean. The art is good. I don't. I don't have any issues with the art. I mean, it's it's not as amazing as J.H. Williams, but it's still very good art. And it'll. It, I, I'm pretty sure this is the last issue that Amy Reader is on. So it's sad to see her go because she does have some really really good art. And but I have seen preview pages for Trevor McCarthy's art for Batwoman, and I think his art is, is is definitely a step up from what he was doing in Nightwing and Gates of Gotham, so that'll be interesting next month, but I mean, overall, it's just, it's a very generic issue, and the, the timeline thing, I'm pretty sure ends with this issue, and I'm glad, because at this point, there's so much cross-pollination with, between the stories that it, it's hard, it's, it's beginning to become hard to figure out exactly what's going on. So I'm going to give this a total of three out of five batterings. Yeah, this is going to be like the shortest review I can ever make because I don't have much to say about this issue again. I agree with Justin. The, the, the constant, like, you know, Kate's story, Maggie's story kind of thing, it throws you off not only because you can, it's, it's very jumpy, but it's from different timelines. It's like from with, one week ago, two nights ago, six nights ago. And if you start off a story at the present and then the story at the present, and, and then the middle is a bunch of jumbled pieces... I, I suppose it's, I suppose I could I could try a bit harder, but I don't really I'm not really personally interested in trying to put these pieces together when we could just tell a story linearly. I mean, we can have flashbacks, but kind of like jumbling them off from different perspectives when this is supposed to be Batwoman's book, I think is a mistake because I I I don't know I don't know what's going on 
one minute she's fighting super villains, the next minute she's like working for uh, the DEA. I mean, I know why, but like, I mean, it's like, what assignment is this? She's spying on Maggie. Why? I don't really know. I mean, it was. I, th- I thought the scene with uh, Maggie on her and her on the boat was kind of interesting because she kind of went up against her. But besides that, it's like these 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 sort of random scenes kind of pop in, and like, I don't really know. They kind of fly, and I'm not. Really, I'm not really sure which emotional reaction I'm supposed to get because, like, when did this take place? Did this happen before this or whatever? And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't. It doesn't really elicit a response from me besides confusion. Um, I still think the violence is a bit over the top. I mean, we see the guy's hand chopped off. I don't know. I, I kind of think that like there's, there's, they're taking. Batwoman doesn't really feel like a bat book to me, and I'm not so sure it necessarily needs to, but I think it would be nice if there was some familiarity. I mean, this, this, this doesn't even feel like a DC book. It kind of just feels like a random, like, like this would be like some other uh, uh, comic book company, which isn't bad. I'm just saying because it feels so unfamiliar, it's hard for me to get into on top of the, the, the crazy storytelling. I mean, I don't think this is a bad issue. Well, I kind of do because I, I couldn't tell what was going on, but I don't know. It, 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 just, it just isn't grabbing me right now. Uh, two and a half out of five batterings. I, unlike the rest of you, seem to still really like the the jumping in time storyline technique. I think if this is the last issue it's happening, then uh, as an overall, I don't think it works because obviously there's so many things are left hanging. If this carries on in this style to complete the arc, then I think because I think it, it's confusing in parts, but it, it all knits together very neatly. And we do get an overall storyline, and it's you know it all comes together like we didn't know who the hook character was, and then this issue we find out how he we don't necessarily know who the guy is to begin with, but we understand how he becomes the hook, and then this is the ongoing storyline of Kate having to liberate this soon character from the g c p d to take to the d e o so they can question her, and then there's the the big fight at the beginning, the end of the issue with her against Falcon, which is, I guess, the finale of the series. I'm, I really like it, and if it gets continued, then I think it's going to work well if we get all the information. If it just stops and we get normal storytelling from now on, it's going to be disappointing because things are left open. I'm interested to know if um, there's a line here where Maggie says, this is Mira to Aquaman. I was wondering if this was written before the New 52 and Aquaman was cool again, because that would have been quite a funny joke just to have that kind of, you know, as a code word for thing, things people wouldn't use if they were just using Mirror and Aquaman as a kind of a joke. That would have been quite funny, but I'm not sure about how that would work out with the timeline. I thought the art was good. It's a shame that we're not going to be seeing Rita anymore, assuming that I think it was this issue was her last. And... uh Still, I don't think we've had any confirmation about why she left other than just creative differences. I, I think this issue, reading it again, I think it picked up. The first time I read it, it wasn't as definitely wasn't as strong as the series has been so far. And I still think it's it's not, but reading it again, there's definitely things in here you can pick out. And I, I do really enjoy Batwoman as a series. I think it's definitely one of the my favourite books, and especially when Williams is on it doing the art, it's, it's definitely the best one to look at. But uh, I'll give this issue three and a half out of five batterings. I, I liked <laughs> the cocaine. I, I thought it was a good joke. I just thought it was a cute choice, especially given the two people that were using it, Maggie and Harvey, <laughs> just the complete opposite of Mira and uh, Aquaman. 
I loved having Donovan Morgan Grant guest starring right at the end and yelling <sighs> betrayer right on cue. Did anyone catch that? Yeah? Yeah? That was me okay. all right. I love seeing Donovan in my comics. <laughs> Slowly but surely, the pieces are coming into place. You know, last issue we see Batwoman recognizing Rush as the guy with the scythe. But we don't see how she knows him. And this ish, we actually see his origin and the origin of the creepy hook. Uh, but we still don't really know how she knows Rush, which is one of the questions that I'm still left with, especially when he says, uh, you promised you would protect me. So hopefully that's answered next issue. We also see that the colonel actually did feel Bet's hand move because that was one of my questions because he just kind of goes on talking, but you see her fingers and he doesn't really acknowledge. But he actually did, which hopefully is a good sign for Bet's recovery. I like seeing Batwoman actually use the gadgets that were highlighted in the previous issue, especially that Arrowhead. I mean, there's like three pages or at least two of her using Arrowhead and uh, does some some deadly damage. I like how she's still having trouble with this sticky alliance. And I'm worried that it's not going to go well for her and Maggie since Kate has to answer to the DEO now. Uh, And she has to because I think at one point she is going to go beyond them and just kind of move on and her dad's going to have to do something for himself but for the the time being as much as she dislikes her father right now i you know she's trying to protect him which is great and at least kate does take it out on chase and sticks to her beliefs in some way when she punches her and says don't make me ever do that ever again Uh, i'm also worried that Maggie and the trank that Batwoman accidentally on purpose uh, Batwoman doses her with is going to cause more problems than Chase believes. She just says that she'll encounter how many like a month's worth of it was something extreme like a terribly long time of nightmares in the span of five hours or something and but it's not going to leave any damage and I feel like there is going to be some residual damage and I'm fearful for Maggie. Uh, the soon storyline was good, and I assume we will learn next issue why she has completely flipped, since that is the next question that I have, we see back and forth. Unlike Dustin, take another drink, I've started getting into the, the rhythm of the timeline. I, I think the first issue, two issues ago that this happened, it was a little sticky, but now I've kind of got gotten into the um, the feel of it all and how the story splits up but I really think you need to be on top of what happens from issue to issue in order to completely understand because if you don't remember the arrow part or the scythe part her, him talking to her before in the previous issue then maybe some of these new scenes would come up on you and you'd be like huh? But I'm still enjoying it, uh, just like Joe. So I guess we're shipping each other again this episode. Um, <laughs> I give this uh, four out of five batterings. All right, so Batwoman number eight gets a total of three out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over uh, John with Bat Books for Beginners.
and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we'll be reviewing Nightwing, Alfred's Return. This was a one-shot which was released in 1995 to try and assess the popularity of Nightwing, find out whether or not the character would be popular enough to justify a miniseries and potentially a major series himself. It was written by Alan Grant, who wrote Batman, Lost Arkham, and was the main writer of the Nightfall series. He created Mr. Zaz, amongst other characters, and is probably his most well-known. The art is by Dick Gordinio, who was a former editor of DC. So, in such illustrious company, is this comic going to be any good? I certainly hope so. Who's that other one? The pretty boy in the leotard. That's Nightwing. He was the Bat's first sidekick. The first Robin. We open with Alfred outside a theatre with flowers for an old friend called Joanna. They go, eat dinner, and agree to meet again. As they finish dinner, Nightwing swings into London on Alfred's trail. He breaks up a robbery, announcing his presence in London. Dick changes out of his costume and interviews the hotel staff to see if Alfred is still there, but he is told that he's left. A doorman remembers him and invites Dick back in an hour. The doorman tips Alfred off, who plans to stop Nightwing. Alfred then goes to Joanna's house, where he meets Derek, Joanna's son. We discover that they were to be married before a man called Johnny broke up the wedding, causing Alfred to leave. She tells Alfred of the gambling debts that her son Derek has got, and the hope that he will pay them off. She also tells him that Derek is Alfred's son. Meanwhile, Nightwing breaks into Alfred's apartment to find the police waiting for him, and is taken to jail. Alfred goes to the casino and tries to pay off Derek's debts. However, the owner, Mr. Hoskins, refuses and has him thrown out. Alfred goes and gets Nightwing from jail, and they discuss Alfred leaving and the hurt that it caused Dick. Alfred apologises, and they make up with Nightwing agreeing to help over Derek's gambling problems. They bug Derek and discover that he has replaced some tapes for Hoskins in the Department of Transport. Derek is thrown out and the flower is left on the floor. Hoskin phones the Duke of Midian and through the bug that's in the flower, they find that they plan to commit to attack something. We then cut to Nightwing, who breaks into the castle owned by the Duke of Midian, discovers the Duke and some generals who plan to blow up the Channel Tunnel. By all the pound coins when the insurance companies having to pay out cause the stock market to crash and thereby rule England. Yeah, I know, we'll get to that. Outside, Alfred is caught by Derek who goes for him but is stopped by Nightwing who explains the plot by the Duke and convinces them to go after the plotters whilst Nightwing deals to stop the truck. Alfred and Derek burst into the room and fight Hoskins and the Duke. Derek is stabbed by the Duke while Alfred fights Hoskins. Alfred deals with Hoskins but is outclassed by the Duke until Derek knocks him out before dying in Alfred's arms. Nightwing stops the truck by crashing it over a cliff. Alfred then comforts Joanna and says that he'll stay but she confesses that Derek was never his son causing Alfred to leave and return to Bruce. So in review 
it was nice to get Alfred's backstory, and we do find out more about him. We discover why he left the UK and turned up to look after Bruce. And we also see that he's able to handle himself, taking out some bouncers and also dealing with Hoskins. However, that is really the only good stuff that I can say about this comic. The writing is really inconsistent. For example, there's a scene where Derek goes to Hoskins and tells Hoskins he's done what he wanted and that he's swapped these tapes over. Hoskins then tells him to get out and not tell anyone, referring to the fact that Alfred had turned up trying to pay his debts. Hoskins then, afterwards, gets really randomly angry at Derek and grabs him, telling him to get out and throws him across the room. Even though he's told him exactly the same thing two panels earlier. And it kind of felt, that scene especially, as if the writers had forgotten to have a night away for Nightwing and Alfred to overhear more of the plan and wrap the story up. The sound effects are really strange. Um, when the lorry goes off the cliff, it makes a kachoom sound. And when it explodes, it goes bawoom. Not boom, but bawoom. Now, I have never crashed a truck over a cliff, nor have I blown anything up. But I am pretty certain things don't make that sound. And if you're going to put them in, try and make the sound effects seem real. We saw last week that Gotham City Police Department worked really well because there were no sound effects. We know what a gun sounds like. We know what an explosion sounds like. So if you're going to insist on putting them in, try and make them accurate, not bawoom, which sounds like a small child making a noise. The writing has not aged well either. We get all the 90s cliché references to power books instead of laptops, and that governments have na- it got little tapes to record all the data on rather than hard drives. And I really did feel like just playing Nirvana as I listened to it. It felt that dated. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, and it can work in many ways, but a classic comic series just doesn't have this. The writing doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel aged. For example, The Killing Joke was written at the end of the 80s, and it just doesn't feel like it was written in that period. It feels like it's still fresh today. The villains are terrible as well. The plan is fantastically stupid. I really can imagine economic students, lecturers, people who work in economics just putting their head in their hands and just crying. Whilst blowing the Channel Tunnel up would be a massive disaster, it's never going to crash the British economy, nor will it ever. Nothing has ever been that catastrophic to cause an economy to crash at all. Or even more, cause martial law to be declared. Also, they keep going on about how they hate Europe and how they want to destroy it. But just by destroying the Channel Tunnel isn't going to mean that nobody will ever trade with Europe again. People still have boats and you can just hop on a ferry. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I really didn't understand Alfred's actions. And they seem really bizarre at times, especially getting Nightwing arrested. It's really stupid and not in character. This is a bloke who has raised Dick as one of his own sons. 
and you know why would he get him arrested and what's even more likely is the police are probably going to go right time to take off the mask and then go oh it appears to be dick grayson i wonder who that is associated with it's just a really stupid thing the whole derek is your son alfred didn't work either it seemed really forced and really contrived and I'd worked out by the end of the sentence when she'd said it that clearly Derek wasn't his son. It was blatantly obvious and you just think Alfred is never going to fall for this. He's just going to look at him and go no, not seeing it. Really not my son and you just asked me to pay off his £50,000 gambling debt. You're probably going to say anything. The art was really, really bad as well. The villains all have massive teeth, which really is really, really distracting. And it tended to make them look like rabbits or rats or rodents. And fair enough, if that's kind of what he was going for with the art, I don't think it was. I think it's just really bad perspective. Also, really bizarre moments include, at one point, Nightwing stands up and we are treated to completely white background. Yeah, that's right. Nightwing stands up and his special power is to make the background disappear. It just looks really, really stupid. Nightwing was really badly drawn for me. I'm not a big fan of the 90s Nightwing. Um, his style and his look, it looks really bad. He basically looks like someone who's trying to draw a really gay Steven Seagal when he had his ponytail you just look at it I don't I don't like it you know maybe that works for some people I don't know for a one shot for a one shot which is designed to show how popular Nightwing is we in fact spent very little time with him this is much much more about Alfred and to be honest really could have done without Nightwing in the story it would have been nice to see Alfred having to deal with it on his own and tackle them uh, in his own way rather than shoehorning in Nightwing which seems like a massive popularist move and I would say it's even questionable whether the results would be more because people wanted to read about Alfred or more because they wanted to read about Nightwing of course that is conjecture but I think it's worth bearing in mind so overall I'm going to give this one out of five batterings just because it has Nightwing in and I love Nightwing he's one of my favorite characters and also because in places this comic was so bad I actually kind of enjoyed it it does in places become so terrible it's a little bit enjoyable and that's why so that's my review of Alfred's Return if you're thinking this is all that we've done with Nightwing you'd be wrong because next week we're going to have a look at the Nightwing miniseries that was released off the back of this so I've been John Thank you very much for listening, and I'm going to hand you back now to Dustin and the guys.
Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the latest Bat Books for Beginners episodes also on the Bat Books for Beginners feed over on the website for all of the previous episodes leading from Batman's continuity from year one forward, moving forward to current times. So with that, we don't have a DCU spotlight this episode, but we do have some other things that I'd like to bring up. It's not necessarily a discussion, but uh, over on the normal podcast, we brought back a segment that we call Ask TBU, where people will send us emails asking us questions and things like that. So there was actually two different things that happened on some of the previous episodes that uh, some viewers commented on, and I wanted to read those comments and then have us respond to them. So the first one comes from Christian Jones. He posted this on our Facebook wall, and he says, I have an interesting observation about Batman number 7. I could be looking at this way too hard, trying to find a connection to the Talons, but I want to see what you guys think. On the page where Snyder pays tribute to Batman Year One, look at Thomas Wayne's bust. If you look at the back of it, the shadow from the window or whatever it is on his back looks like the strap that goes over the Talon's chest and holds a knife, and it looks like a knife on the backside. I don't think Thomas Wayne was a Talon because he wasn't in Haley Circus, but Snyder could be messing with us by making us have second thoughts about his history. Thoughts? Well, my immediate thoughts is I did look at this image and I didn't necessarily interpret it the exact same way as you did, Christian. Um, I don't think that... I th- I think Thomas Wayne may have ties to the Talons, but I don't think it has anything to do with Haley's Circus. The other thing is, I don't know that Haley's Circus has always been the way for the Talons to come about. I think... I mean, we know that the Haley Circus has been around for a while, but I doubt that it's been around since, you know, the 1600s or the 1780s, because we know that there's talents from those time frames too. So I don't think that the circus has been around that long. So I don't think that the circus has always been the only way of, for the Court of Owls to actually get talents. That being said, I do think somehow, which I think is going to be revealed in the backup in Batman, dealing with the history of Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne and Alfred's dad, um, I think that's going to explain a little bit more of how the Court of Owls falls in with the Waynes before Bruce Wayne was around. Yeah, I agree. I think the idea of the Haley Circus is that they they went by to Haley Circus to recruit somebody for the Towns and meaning to get Dick Grayson and end up getting Raymond or whatever it was. I don't, I don't think that like it was a long-standing, centuries-long tradition. I saw that image. Uh, I, saw, I saw this post and was creeped out by it. Um, it was the, the issue could be out in the first place already. I think it's, it could be an, uh, an Easter egg that Greg Capullo put in there. It could be something that that could be brought up later, but it really, it's, it's just like a silhouette and a flashback. I mean, it might it might be a, a hint towards something down the line, but I'm not sure if it's meant to be any sort of clue. Uh, I think it's just sort of it's like isn't this kind of get get the readers thinking? But I don't think it would have any long term uh, repercussions. Yeah, I, I agree. Is it? Looking at it now, actually, it's a quite a cool spot. It's a, with that in mind, you can definitely start thinking about a lot of things like that, and it's you know, definitely an interesting idea. But I, I'm not sure if all that. I, I definitely don't think he was a, a talent, but it's probably there's definitely something to do with that. Probably you know knowing Scott Snyder and all his his history. 
All right, so then the other comments also came on a Facebook wall, and it was from Jeremy Tyson Lambert, and he says, Listening to Comicast 88 today, wanted to touch on a few things about Batman and Robin. Number one, I'm sure I'm not the only one who noticed Don calling Damien Jason during his review. And I can tell you, you weren't. Number two, A, Dustin said he didn't know how Damien could do the killing move with broken fingers. He only had broken fingers on his left hand. If you look at the final splash, the hand he is using isn't all broken broken up. His right hand was fine. Okay, I did look back and I did look at this. Obviously, once I figured out that he didn't actually die, or he did actually kill nobody, I re-looked at... Issue seven, and I read uh, after I read issue eight, and I completely agree. I was in the wrong about him not killing him. Question two B states: Dustin also said he didn't get how Damien could do do the move fatally if no one ever taught him how. Morgan taught him the right way, and the whole reason Bruce wouldn't teach him is because he said if it was performed perfectly, it would be fatal. You don't have to be taught how to do it less than perf- perfectly. Take brain surgery, for example. Doctors learn how to do it properly. They could easily not do it properly and kill someone. If it's an extreme delicate procedure and you don't have to be taught how to screw it up because it's so easy to do. Okay, so here's my thoughts on that. I understand that it was a move, but I thought the whole point of the move initially was not to kill the person. The whole point of the move was to paralyze the person. It was to knock them out. That's why I was saying, how could he do it wrong? I was confused in the fact that I didn't actually think he was doing it to kill him. That's why I made the comments that I made. I never thought that Damien was actually trying to kill this guy. I thought he was trying to knock him out so that he would shut up. When he died, and we, I realized that he was actually dead. This was clearly after I read Batman number eight or Batman Robin number eight, and I realized he was actually dead. I realized it wouldn't make a difference of whether or not he knew how to do the move or not. And that's why Bruce wouldn't teach him the move, because if he did it wrong, then he would kill the person, which was his intent from the beginning. That's not what I thought was going on, so that's why I was saying what I was saying. So I just want to clarify that. All right, and finally, the last part of his thing is a long statement. It says, I agree that the final line by Damien was corny, but I disagree that the action was poor in taste story-wise. If anything, it adds credence to Bruce not wanting to teach Damien the move for fear that he would misuse it. I also don't agree that it went against Damien joining Morgan to help Bruce. I honestly don't think Damien did it so that he could go against Bruce and kill. Someone said if they were going to have him kill anyway, they could have just had him kill one of the thugs. I don't think it was Damien's intent to just go against Bruce and use lethal force against his wishes. Right at the end there, I think he realized just how serious of a threat Morgan was. I don't think Damien is just going to run around killing, but Morgan is much more than just a thug. Not only is he a serious threat in general, but to the Bat family specifically. I honestly don't think Damien is going to go around killing everyone now, but I do think he's going to think, Dad is noble and I respect him, but sometimes he's wrong. And... Clearly, that was a dead-on statement because that's pretty much exactly how the first few pages of Batman and Robin number 8 play out. Again, it just had to do with I was convinced that he wasn't actually killing them because I didn't think they were actually going to play it that way. I think they, because they did play it that way, I think they played it perfectly, as I said during my review. Um, But the big thing is, I think ultimately going down the line, I don't think that Damien is going to continue to kill people, but I do think that he will 
think twice about whether it's worth it to kill somebody overall. That's just me. Yeah, I think um, I'm not, I'm not sure who it was who said that, but I I think the point was that we were saying if he ended up killing after all all the time not killing, it, it's not that um, he wants to defy Bruce that he was just you know killing him just to annoy his dad. It, I, th- I think we understood that he was it was because he was a major threat. I think for that story for that issue. I think we're saying that it kind of took away the integrity of him not killing, just to have him kill at the end. But then the way they played it out in this issue, I think totally justifies what he did. All right. So if you have comments that you would like to have read or questions that you would like answered, um, given that we have enough time to actually do them in the episode, we will take your questions and answer your questions in future episodes Regardless of when we actually have time, we will figure out a way to actually get them answered. So leave your comments on uh, Twitter or Facebook, or you can email us always at podcast at thebatmaninverse.net. All right, as far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we will be covering Batman number eight, Batman Beyond Unlimited number three, Batman Odyssey number seven, Birds of Prey number eight, Catwoman number eight, Nightwing number eight, and Batman the Dark Knight number eight as well as Red Hood and The Outlaws, number eight as well. So that is all of that. I do want to say I was I did meet a fan at C2E2 who asked me a interesting question related to the comic podcast. They asked me whether or not we would be covering Batman Arkham Unhinged, which is uh, the digital chapters that were released in conjunction with the release of Batman Arkham City. And they are now being actually printed in print, um, so they're actually physical copies, and they were asking us whether or not we were going to be covering those on the podcast. I've decided that we will not be covering them on the podcast just because, at this point, the digital chapters have been out for about six months. The game is is not nearly as relevant, and it would it's, to me it's, it would be almost as if like what we did back in the day when we covered the all-new Batman Brave and the Bold. We never actually covered that because it related to the TV shows. That's more of a media incarnation of Batman, and we don't really cover those on the podcast. So I just want to clear that up for anybody out there who is wondering why or why not we're not covering those issues. So, with that being said, that's everything for this episode. Make sure you head over to the website for all the news related to the comics and everything else related to the Batman universe. You can leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos related to the Batman universe. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can join the forums and become a member. If you do so and you need your account activated, be sure to send us an email and let us know that you need your account activated. And last but not least, I do want to throw a reminder out there that if you have any sort of phone that is Android or an iPhone or anything like that, there is an app that allows you to get the Batman Universe podcast immediately on your phone. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I must have forgot to mention this for the past six months. Well, that's because I did forget to mention it for the past six months. But there's an app called Stitcher. And if you go to stitcher.com slash BU, BU for Batman Universe, obviously, they will actually link you up with all of our podcasts. And there's instructions on the website. If you go to the website, there's an advertisement at the top saying the Batman Universe is on Stitcher. Click on that. It'll give you instructions on how to get the app 
and how to actually be entered into a drawing for $100. So if you are interested in that and you want to stay up to date with the Batman Universe, regardless of whether or not you use an iPod, iPhone, iPad, or an Android phone, or I think it even works on BlackBerry now too, you can follow us on pretty much any device out there right now. So with that being said, that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is John. I like orange marmalade. And this is Stella. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Joe, put the gun down. No! (laughs) Well, I guess I agree with Donovan. I mean, chipper. (laughs) Oh my Oh, wow. What happened? Shot to the throat. A shot in the throat? Shot to the throat. But did you have, like, strep throat or something? No, I got punched in the throat. By who? The fan at C2E2. Why? They didn't like my comments about Batgirl. I hope to God this is a joke. <laughs> no, it's really not. Uh, did someone just, what, did you say, what, you just said Batgirl wasn't good and someone just ran up and punched you in the throat? No, what happened was, uh... Gail Simone was signing, and I was asking someone online why they like Batgirl. And I was trying to get them on camera, and they didn't really like it. So, like, a person standing next to them was like, Hey, why don't you shut up? And then they hit me in the throat. Was, uh, their security? No, I I don't know if it was their security. I assume it was, like, their boyfriend or something. (laughs) I'm sorry that happened to you. I really really am. Yeah, it's life. Just goes to show what the destruction that, that that title can do. Yeah, it's really a shame. How did you respond to getting punished in the throat? Did you did you fight back or did you just like grab what he was trying to get signed, bend the corner, and run away? That's what I would have done. The DC security ended up uh, pulling them to the side, and then they ended up getting thrown out of the convention. So there wasn't really anything for me to do. All right, so we're ready to go then. Yes, sir. And we are ready to go. Yes. <laughs> Oh dear! Yeah, I figured it would make a great ending for the comment or for the blooper reel. <laughs> oh, it does. Because <laughs> you sounded like a monster. <laughs> oh crap! Who says Dustin doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> Again? <laughs> Was Gotham turning its big stone eye towards the Batman? So wait, let me get this straight. So you're gonna go to Asia? You don't know any Asian languages, but you're gonna teach them English? <laughs> I know how it sounds. Is this going to be like a visual class only? To point to a gallon of milk and say, this is milk. Say milk. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just going to talk to them until they understand just in what English. The and then one day they're going to walk in and they're going to be like, oh, we get it now. <laughs> and it turns out to be Joseph Cohn. Oh, no, no, no. Um... <laughs> those crumpets <gasps> <laughs> well I never one of these days Stella oh <laughs>
Um, and so I'm going to agree with my marmalade teen friend. Uh, Still doing that? <laughs> Punch you in the face. <laughs> See how much we love each other over I'll here at the Batman universe? Chelsea smile. Oh, boy. Anywho. Why is it that all black guys are Donovan? <laughs> but he wasn't black, was he? He was white. It's just that Donovan yells, betray, all the time. <laughs> it's an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs>